I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Ryan Bolin. And we love to watch. We love to watch, loves to witness Nicolas Cage's glow up. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? Hey. Happy 2021. Woo. Uh, yeah. We're recording it early. No one knows how to react to that. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> I was like, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Fuck, we're, yeah. We're recording it's been, this been in good. September. So uh, I, I, I was trying to anticipate if I'm going to feel very bad. Wow, way to just good. give, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I could do, we could do. Uh, Let's do two takes. I'll do the excited one first that you guys mm-hmm. respond to. Okay. And then, so. Hey guys! Happy hey, 2021! Hey, what's, what's up, up man? You know, I mean, like, you respond to the happy, Should not just the hey guys. <laughs> Christ. Can't believe we're here. <laughs> we finally did it. A movie. Uh, that was true in 1989 as well. <laughs> it's, it's true in 1999 as it is in 2021. And every year since. Uh, all right, let's do a sad one, but understand my, my goal is to say the year before you guys chime in. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Um. Hey guys, welcome to uh, Nightmare Part Two, twenty twenty one. We blew it. <laughs> uh, we're back, baby. It is po- it is possible that someone listening to this right now is like, yeah, those motherfuckers thought it was funny. Meat yeah. <laughs> meat, meat meat sources are limited. So. Yeah. <laughs> So funny. Remember those fires from September? They never went out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these guys had no idea what dog tastes like. I miss yeah. having working refrigerator. Uh, yeah, so yeah, we're releasing this once again just into our street. Yep. <laughs> just on go. cassette we, tapes we, and we scatter yeah, them about. I, I burned this on uh, on 800 floppy disks. Here you go, world. <laughs> and Try to some, get and somehow you mail it to us and stuff so we can also, you know. Hand them out. Yeah, but but I can't I can't afford enough uh, floppy disks to make three copies, so everyone gets a part. And then if somehow in the apocalypse we get reconnected, it'll be like I have the second part of that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> it'll be like uh, it'll be a post-apocalyptic Zyrica. Yeah, it'll be like that scene in uh, Beyond Thunderdome where they find the record in the train. I think mm-hmm. been a little bit since I've seen it. But anyways, where were you left to watch? We're movie podcast. Yeah, we are starting our hold on. So I'm literally counting our sixth calendar year of doing this show uh, for you listeners. Which wow, is a that's tw- nuts. I, that is so fucking nuts. If this gets released, if there is a 2021, it is true. That will be true. Um, but yeah, we're um, we're starting a new month. And well, I guess starting a new month is a little bit um, incorrect. But yeah, we're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month around that theme, and if we remember, we compare and contrast. And we're doing now what is a uh, our third incarnation of uh, this is uh, it's a Lovecraft month. I believe we're calling it. Didn't you have a name for this one, Peter? Winter's Lovecraft. Yeah, love and other crafts. Um, but we are that's a take on love and other drugs. If you yeah. didn't get it from the obvious reference, uh, but yeah, we. So why are we doing this? So, um, we, uh, we were very, I think we talked about it quite a bit, actually, last, um, last January 2020, a year ago. Wait, can uh, I do an alternate name for January? Sorry. Can you do, can you, can you do Eat, Pray, Lovecraft? 
<laughs> yes, god. yeah, we, we can do that. Oh yeah, my god! The month is called uh, Eat, Pray, Lovecraft. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll take out everything that comes before. Backing up? No, I'm just fucking. No, that's what the month is called. This is the All first right. week. We sometimes you workshop it. As I don't know. It's only September. Can you, are you sure you want to make such drastic decisions? <laughs> We're doing it. Okay. Um. Uh, so yeah, so uh, last last year when we recorded all those January episodes, one of our things we kept talking about is like, hey, there may be a bonus episode when the color – or sorry, color out of space comes out. The Richard Stanley's Return to Filmmaking starring Nicolas Cage, the adaptation of The Color Out of Space, which is my favorite Lovecraft story, which we talked about quite a bit on this show. Peter, I forget. Is it yours? Uh, my favorite is Shadow Over Innsmouth, um, huh. and this is definitely a, a tight second. Like, this is this is one of those stories where it's, like, easy to hand someone be like, hey, this is what I love about Lovecraft. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, this one has low-key, almost, I think, almost no racism. <laughs> I don't want to say none. I, have, I did not reread it um, for this, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I would never bet on none, but, but definitely less. For sure. Probably a little classism because he also didn't like uh, poor people and the story is specifically about poor farmers. But yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, we kept talking about like there may be a bonus episode because we knew this was coming out. Also, we we did a podcast on uh, Lost Soul and Island of Dr. Moreau, which is uh, Richard, was supposed to be Richard Stanley's uh, third movie and the documentary of him essentially getting fired – after casting most of it and uh, then watching the movie that ensued, which is definitely a fascinating movie, if not being traditionally good. But I think it's hard to walk away from that do- documentary not becoming like a Richard Stanley fan, a Stan Stan, as we yeah. would say. <laughs> we definitely like we became Stan Stans because we're like, this guy is like, first of all, he has a very good artistic vision. He was not fired for being like a dick. The exact opposite. Like, everyone was being a dick to him, and he was like this, like, I, you know, I just want to make films. I have this great vision. Uh, and everyone's like, yeah, but God, hire the, you know, hire this, and no, that's not commercial. Like, it really was that idea of, like, someone with a true artistic vision getting um, a chance at, like, a big-budget Hollywood movie to tell that vision and then getting, like, chewed up, spit out. And he, like, then disappeared. He uh, stopped making movies. It seemed partially by choice, like, the experience was so terrible for him that he left. And so hearing that and, – and also on top of that, we covered um, a, a German adaptation of this movie – um, when we did our initial like summer of Lovecraft back in 2019, <laughs> years are tough right now. And uh, we talked about how that ad- adaptation is like serviceable at best. It has some interesting moments. It was made for no budget by fans. It's hard to like, you know, really kind of be like, this is terrible or get angry at it. But it definitely is. You know, it's a fan made film with you accept it for in- what it is, accept it for what it is. But so. But, you know, this being such, I think, a potentially cinematic story and then finding out that, hey, there's a color out of space. It's starring Nicolas Cage post Mandy, which very exciting for Peter and myself. Uh, probably a lot of you listening as well. Directed by the return of Richard Stanley, uh, who's had this idea for decades, which some of that is definitely visible. Like part of the script feels like it was written in 1996 with barely a rewrite. That's fine. We'll talk about it. <laughs> um 
And uh, and also it's being produced by Elijah Woods, uh, Spectre Vision, who has been like just basically like, let's do cool genre movies for a good budget. And so yeah. let's, we let's w- stop there real quickly. Yeah. so I can I can knock this note out. I have way too many notes. Uh, they directed Craig McNeil's The Boy. Mm-hmm. So not the the wide released one, uh, the more obscure movie, The Boy, which is amazing. Uh, yep. They did Mandy, obviously. Uh, last year, they did a movie called Daniel Isn't Real. Uh, a few years ago, they did A Girl Who Walks Home uh, at, at <laughs> A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, the uh, Iranian American uh uh, vampire movie, uh, and they also did Greasy Strangler, like like uh, Greasy, yeah, great movie. It, it, basically, Elijah Woods' uh, horror bona fides are stocked up. And while while we're while I'm interrupting Aaron, uh, yeah. doing a great intro, um, yeah, like Colorado Space has been it been quote unquote adapted to film a bunch of times. Um, the uh, Die Farbe, which we covered as, you know, Colorado Space a few years ago for uh, a Summer of Lovecraft, um, the German version. Um, it was also uh, a Corman production called Die Monster Die, which I haven't seen before, but I'm going to check out. Uh, yeah. But as you know, to, like a lot of adaptations of the time, it took like a couple little nodes of an idea and then, you know, ran off on its own direction. Um, sort of like Castle Freak, I would say. Um, and then The Curse. Um, which is sounds like it's a decent adaptation. Yeah, I read very, about that hard. researching this that I, I might very be hard to, to find. Check out. Yeah, I haven't seen it either because I was trying I was trying to watch that and Die Monster Die before we we got to this episode. But we'll we'll talk about those uh, once we get a chance to actually watch them because the curse is out of print and very hard to find. Yeah, uh, and it's problem- it's worth noting too. Like, I mean, this movie's been adapted more than a few times, but also like I think you can make the case that. Um, that uh, most movies take some level of influence that are produced nowadays from color out of space. When H.P. Lovecraft wrote it, uh, most movies were in black and white. And now it's rare to see a movie not in color. Um, and I think that was partially influenced by this story that like you, these people in this book are like, oh, shit, color. It amazed them. It changed the landscape for this farmers. And and then I, my my theory is that at some point, movie studios are like, let's let's fuck up the audiences like uh, like the meteor fucked up that town. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you're so right. And that's why if you look at any photographs of, you know, the era, um, they're all in black and white. Um, but then, you know. Uh, a few decades after um, Colorado Space was printed, um, you know films you you start to get more like wizard of oz that's partially in black and white partially in color it's sort of (laughs) teasing it out um Mm -hmm. so you could say uh hp lovecraft is responsible for uh the universe having color in a sort of pleasantville manner yeah pleasantville um the exact opposite of colorado space where it starts out in full color it becomes black and white and then as the realities merge it uh that color That's comes kind back. A, kind of a half and half for a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and, and I, I feel like it's also while I'm just rattling off stuff. Uh, the that are definitely segment. facts and helpful. Uh, this is this this is a fact. Uh, I don't know if it's more or less true than what Darren just said. Um, I mean, hold on. Before when he wrote this book. There were not movies in color. That is accurate. Fact. fact. I I just like the idea that it's a a very hostile 
Like, the way you made it sound like it wasn't like, it's like, oh, black and white. Well, what about color? It was like, you like black and white? Well, fuck you. Here's <laughs> here's color. Like, it was, like, very aggressive. Like, it was like, and that's how color films were born. It's just. Yeah, producers just wanted to. D- to I mean, D.W. Griffith was angry. Yeah. <laughs> he was he was ornery. He was bucking. He, he was like a he was like a bull. And a, like it's and like a, people chasing other. You think that's cool, black and white? I'll show you something that's really cool, buddy. Come here. <laughs> it's just it's just the same picture, but in color. It's it's crazy. Someone's like tearing out their eyes. Like he showed me burnt sienna. <laughs> that's, exactly. That's when you cut to a guy who's got like a long trench coat on, and instead of flashing, he pulls it open and has a bunch of different colors. You're like oh, you want eight crayons? <laughs> uh, is that beige? <laughs> no, they have to start soft. They have to. That's like, what I mean. It's like the softest. Hey, hey, kid, hey, hey kid, you ever seen yeah. ashy violet? You're like, no, absolutely. Is that not. a very dark green? <laughs> <laughs> most, most, uh, most early color films were all past- pastels. Um, <laughs> everyone thought it was Easter. I was going to say. The time. Yeah. They they were sick of uh, it, it, and the person who directed Star Trek the motion picture just woke out of a coma from from the early pastel movies and yeah. was like I'm gonna make all their uniforms look like this. <laughs> <laughs> every col- every one of the first color films was is technically a cursed film because it, it created like a rites of spring uh, a uh, absolute fin de like effect on the audience uh, an antrum like effect on the audience where they would uh, they would have a freak out and start tearing out their eyes uh, uh, attacking their neighbor mm-hmm. uh, all of that and uh, eventually audiences just got over it yeah so i think what the fuck i was talking about before all this important information the audience needs to know uh is that uh so peter and i kept talking about it because we're like we're gonna do it it's coming out it had done film festivals in august um and that's when we started hearing pretty good reviews and august of 2019 is when we're wrapping up summer of lovecraft so we're like okay maybe we just do it as an extra episode and then we hear it's going to get released in early 2020. We kind of plan that a winter's Lovecraft and we're like, okay, maybe we're going to get a chance to get theaters and sneak it in. And then uh, it doesn't get released till February. I, I believe both of us saw it in theaters. Yep. Um, and back, back when there were movies you can see in theaters where all you had to. I was going to talk about that a little. This is one of the last movies I saw in theaters. And there, there was a little bit of like. Um, you know, when I saw it in theaters, which was like the end of February, there was like the chatter of like uh, what was going on in the world at the time. And so like I had that at the back of my head seeing this movie and this movie is obviously about like uh, the world that you're accustomed to changing rapidly. And so like there, I did have a little bit of like PTSD re- at the beginning of this movie. Like, oh, yeah, like, oh, uh, this kind of became a um, this kind of became a reality in a different scale. But um uh, it was it was weird reseeing it from that perspective. So, but it didn't come out to February. Peter and I were going to do as an extra episode. Instead, we ultimately decided let's you know we have other Lovecraft movies that we wanted to do Lovecraft inspired or adaptations. Um, and at the same time, I saw another movie Underwater, which we're going to cover next week. That I was like, oh, interesting. Like, this isn't a good movie, but this is definitely something to talk about with Peter. Um, about specifically as it relates to, like, Lovecraft tropes. Because, it, man, it it did something um, that I haven't seen before. But it also feels like 
uh, they tried to hide their Lovecraft movie under a bushel pretty hard, uh, even from the movie itself for most of it. So uh, I'm exci- I'm really excited to talk about that, even if it's not a great movie. But that comes out in January. I do happen to see that in theaters because I was just looking for something to see in theaters, too. So it made sense, like, as we're talking about those two things uh, and a couple other holdovers to do another Lovecraft month so it makes sense i think for us to kick this one off because this is the straight edit i think the only straight adaptation we're doing this month as opposed to uh which is more representative of our uh summer of lovecraft and our winter's lovecraft in that uh we did initially uh adaptations and then we did influenced by uh so we're gonna do color out of space we're gonna do uh next week underwater which is kind of a spoiler to say how lovecrafty and it ends up being but uh it it's is. Been a year. It's been a year. It's not good, uh, but it is like very specifically Lovecraft. I don't think Peter, you've seen it yet. I'm pretty excited to be. be no, uh, I I, I remember sitting in the park underground parking garage in the movie theater and like just texting you a bunch. Like, wow, okay. Uh, I'm not going to spoil this, but you should see Underwater. It's not good. I felt bad that I. It. I, I felt bad is. that I got out of the movie after Color Out of Space and I didn't have like one of you two around because I was just like overflowing with thoughts and I was just like I was like I gotta I gotta talk to somebody about this like the, the under that you being sitting in the parking garage uh, like needing to text someone before the thought kind of flits away or before, yeah. you know that thought is just gonna bother you on the whole ride home like I I pretty sure i did that for colorado space to both of you i like texted you it was like i just saw it i was alone my, my wife doesn't have any interest in seeing movies like this um and it was like i just saw it alone like i need someone to bounce off i did that with mandy yeah. for sure i literally saw it alone in the theater because i there was nobody else who i could arguably because i just didn't know even what was going to happen in the movie it's yeah. like i couldn't really convince anybody to be like no just come see it and i saw it alone and i was like i need to talk to somebody about this like right now yeah, I got feelings, uh, man. I, I'm sure I annoyed all my coworkers after seeing Mandy because I remember I saw it on like a random Thursday night, and I'm like, "Okay, everyone needs to see this." And we're like, "We're you, we're not like you, Aaron." Yeah, no, I've definitely had that conversation where, especially on a weekday, because you go into the office and like you can't even help it; it's just like spilling over. Well, okay, my wife so was asleep I, when I came back. I, I saw this movie. I saw this movie yesterday. Okay, it's a, it sounds weird when I explain it, but it's really good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then we're also doing um, some other influence buys that almost made the cut last. Uh, January and um, that we're really excited to talk about and that is the 1992 Japanese horror movie Darkwater which I haven't seen uh, yet as of this recording I mean I I actually own it on Blu-ray because Pierre spoke so highly of it uh, when you watched it for Spooktober a couple years ago so I'm excited for that and then (laughs) hold on Aaron Aaron, we have to pause we have to pause right there yeah it's a different movie I was like Dark Waters yeah Dark Water Dark Dark Waters. It's a different movie. No, you're talking. Wait, are you talking about 2005's Dark Water? I'm talking about. No, that's uh, the 19- Jennifer Connelly remake of the 1992 movie. I'm talking about the 1993 movie. What? Oh, oh. <laughs> this is funny. I'm this is funny in real time. Pulling it up on my phone. I'm like, oh, that's. I, I'm movie. actually yeah. I'm on Amazon right now. What movie am I supposed to watch? Dark Waters. Uh, I just. I just. I just sent you a chat for for this. Uh, if you look at the poster art, you'll see exactly why I said this should be a... Uh... Okay, so starring Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> it looks like... <laughs> is, it, is it this uh, Russian one? It is uh, an Italian movie by Mariano Baiano. Oh, yeah, it is 94 then. You're right. 
Right? Oh, yeah. I, IMDb says 93. I don't know if it was released in the States in 94 or whatever, but... All right. Well, I added to my watch list. I don't know if I'm excited to watch it anymore because I just learned about its existence, but I was excited to watch Dark Water, um, which I think I probably still will. Between... Yeah. It, it, oh, Dark Water is good, too. The original good. Dark Water. I, I mean, I own it. Yeah. I thought it made sense. Peter, I didn't quite understand how it was Lovecraft, um, but it's you know, not. water, that's where Cthulhu lives. No, it's its a Japanese spooky ghost story. It's a very good one, but it's not its not Lovecraft. I'm talk- referring to 1993's, this is fun, because this means that this is a movie that people maybe aren't super familiar with. So, uh, no. uh, 1993's uh, Italian movie, uh, Dark Waters, which is about a uh, sort of... The first review happenings. on Amazon gives it one out of five stars. <laughs> you, can't, you can't trust Amazon. Uh, it, it takes place on a, uh, a convent on an island, uh, and the the, uh, the nuns are not necessarily on the up and up. They've got a culty habit. Why well, didn't we do... Can I, ask, can I ask a quick question? There is that Uzumaki movie. Why didn't we do Uzumaki? Because that movie sucks. <laughs> I uh, that's also funny because I watched the Jennifer Connelly Darkwater for last October at some point. <laughs> so like when you started, that's like really you're really pushing for this movie. <laughs> it sounds like both of you should watch the original <laughs> Darkwater. Darkwater's just like Jennifer Connelly in an apartment. Uh, but yeah, so that is uh, Dark Waters from 1993 is is the uh, the other one we're going to watch. Uh, and then the final one is another one I'm bringing to the table, which is also arguably more obscure than this one called Black Mountainside, which is an indie movie. Oh, I bought Other Side of the Mountain, the children's book about the kid that gets <laughs> lost in the Appalachians. Uh, yeah, I bought uh, Mountain Time, Fun Time, the tale of uh, when John Krakauer went to a mountain and just had an okay time. I don't think that's the name of that book, if, if you have the author right. Yeah, John Krakauer, yeah, he wrote the book, Mountain Time, Fun Time. Yeah, Black Mountainside, which is arguably even more obscure than Dark Waters, uh, though they're they're all on uh, Amazon Prime dash Shutter, um, so uh, they are they are available to watch. I'm not I didn't like drag up VHS copies for us to to watch, um, and so yeah, we're gonna be filling out the month with I I, I kind of picked two more uh, obscure obscure goofy ones, and then we're gonna be we're actually gonna be uh, covering a Lovecrafty movie. Uh, next month for the show. Next month, we'll say uh, that. Excuse me. Yeah, um, but we can uh, we can keep that sort of a tease. It'll be part of a different theme, but also part of Lovecraft. So Lovecraft um, is everywhere, much like color movies. Um, and also because we're bad hosts and it's a new year, Jesus but Christ, still we the never same. introduced Ryan. <laughs> yeah, we didn't introduce Ryan. I mean, you've heard him. You've heard him on this. My show. My favorite uh, recent movie, modern movies, are The Artist, The Lighthouse. Uh, I can't think of another black and white one right now. <laughs> the first eight minutes of Casino Royale. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden I was like, they lost me. They, uh. What's this red blood? <laughs> ah! <laughs> the, the color it burns! So anyway, someone who uh, did, didn't even feel slighted. Did you forget that we didn't introduce you? Uh, no, I thought, well, no, I did the, and I'm Ryan Bullen. I didn't, uh, beyond that. Yeah, I but figured, normally we give a little like, more context boom, to who I'm that here. is. The regulars know me. They they've they've already groaned and said, uh, "Ryan Bolin's a guest." Uh, yeah, but if you if you didn't if you didn't get it, Ryan Bolin is uh, someone who I've met in person twice, and who Peter has met in person roughly eight thousand times, at least more than twice. More than yeah, twice. over two. 
Two plus. Two plus. That's an accurate statement. Uh, if you want to hear how they met and uh, quiz of their friendship, go listen to our Southland Tales episode. I was going to say, I don't know which episode that was, but that did happen. That did absolutely happen. But I, uh, w- what was it, kindergarten or first grade? First grade? Started sharing, uh, sharing a classroom, sharing a friendship. They were such good friends that Peter moved across the country to get away from him. But we still invite him on the show due to the contract. It's legally binding. It is legally binding. And that's the most important move, kind of binding. You can be on twice a year. Yeah. The, <laughs> the ties that legally bind. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, let's get back to let's get back to this. So, as much as I am a Stan Stan, um, I have... I am... <laughs> Great. Stan Stan. Um, what? Stan Stan. No, I get it. I know you get it, but you seemed mad. We were like, Ryan, I was just going into an important point about being a Stan I, Stan. I think Stan Stan is more fun to say than Stan Square, so I want to ruin it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I agree. What do you want to say? And because I like both of you so much, I'm a Stan Stan fan fan. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. With, with you being so wishy-washy, you, you remind me of a Stan Stan Flim Flim man. <laughs> a Stan Stan Flim Flam Flip Flop man? Yeah. You keep this up, you're going to get uh, Stan Stan Ban Band. <laughs> Wait, Stan Stan Flim Flam Ban Man? Man? No, but I've not seen, I feel bad, <laughs> I haven't seen Hardware or Dust Devil, even though they've been on like various queues forever. So technically, this is my first uh, Richard Stanley movie. Um, but I do want to do like a quick two minutes on Lost Soul, because uh, we released that movie, or that episode, I think, back in 2017. But it really it really is hard not to walk away from that movie and not only want to be friends with Richard Stanley, but are like, dude, someone give this guy another movie. Not not just because he seems very affable, seems very nice, um, seems like the type of person you want making movies, but um, the the vision he outlines and talks about and shows drawings from from his interpretation of what he wanted to do with the island of Dr. Moreau is a movie I very much wanted to see. And um, it wasn't a huge surprise to me that, like, someone who was that big of a horror guy is a Lovecraft guy, especially um, in the 90s. But, you know, hearing that he had had this vision for Color Out of Space uh, was something that was just, like, hearing, hearing those two together, like, Lovecraft, Color Out of Space, Richard Stanley's going to direct it, I mean, I was – I can't think of a movie I was – I mean, there's definitely examples. I don't know why I'm using – being that hyperbolic, like Jurassic Park, I was more – I was looking forward to more in my life. But it definitely was was something that I'm like, okay, the second this is out, I need to see it in theaters. Yeah, this was something that we we, we kind of had a lot of runway to. Uh, yeah. Because we've been doing Lovecraft months. We determined that we were on Richard Stanley's side. We even ended the – Lost Souls episode, dash Dr. Moreau episode, uh, sort of like saying like, oh yeah, it sounds like Richard Stanley might be making a comeback, but like we were kind of unsure what, what was happening. It sounds like he was basically just pitching projects to Spectre Vision until um, one of them clicked. And also, uh, there's a bunch of very like cute stories from Elijah Wood um, making this movie. Um where Richard Stanley, who is very intimately involved with this project, but like not cute, tragic cute, I would say. Um like Richard, they they got their their picture greenlit. He got the money he needed 
Um, the movie has a very modest budget. Um, big for an indie movie, but like modest for this kind of scale movie. Um, I mean, it's like three, four million and way more than that looks like it's on screen. It, like he it probably like sold. A, it looks like a thirty to fifty million dollar movie. I would. He say. probably sold his entire hat collection to finance on the side. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a very cute story of he like Richard Stanley ties. basically not believing Elijah Wood when Elijah Wood uh, and his producers uh, Daniel Noah and Josh C. Waller, um, when those three said like, "Yeah, you're greenlit. Here's your money." Um, him not believing them. And sort of like not answering his call, their calls because he was like he thought they were fucking with him or, you know, they were it was some sort of con job. Um, and then Elijah Wood like showed up to his like familial castle in France and had to like <laughs> basically like, hi. Yes. From my Lord of the only Rings. thing now is bankrolling dream projects like this. Like my only thing yeah. is bankrolling weird horror properties. Like you, we want to make your movie, and then he convinced him to come back to to you know L.A. and take meetings and start pre production. And like uh, Richard Stanley had been so hurt by the Hollywood process that when the Hollywood process uh, finally found a, a a home for him, uh, he didn't trust it. So it's it's, it's sweet. Yeah, and worth noting, we're not going to get into it much on this podcast, probably, even though he is related to this. Like, Elijah Wood seems like, I mean, I, I think, Peter, we haven't discussed it, but I think our highest ranking for a human being is an A-plus sweetie pie. Mm-hmm. And I think I would put Elijah Wood in that category because he, yeah. like, which is which is both rare for, like, I think any actor, but let alone a child actor. And he seems like... Um, just an amazing person. Any way you slice it. Uh, first time, long time. I just wanted to ask: Is A plus sweetie pie? Is that a grade and rank, or is is it like A A no. plus A plus sweetie pie? No, uh, it's all one thing. There's no, there's no A sweetie pie. But I mean, like, is oh, I wasn't sure if it was like A cutie pie. Like, oh, all right, all right, we'll step. No, down. there's not like there's not like a B plus sweetie pie. That's just A plus sweetie pie. Um, there's also there's also a certified sweetie that's a little bit below. Um, still good. It's still if you an cer- position. It's, yeah, I right. mean, if you get certified sweetie by this podcast, I mean, hang that shit on your fucking mantle. If you don't have a mantle, build one because you're gonna want to invite guests over to see. Mm-hmm. We love to watch certified sweetie pie. You finally got something worth showing off, you know? Yeah, and build then, that mantle. Uh, Yep, and that is that's our two good rankings, and then the other one is like whatever Dean Kane and Frank Whaley are. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Dean Kane. I like to think that Dean Kane is just the rating for other stuff. Ooh, he's a real Dean yeah, Kane. Yeah, like we we don't have a name for them because much like um in this movie you can't describe the color because it's so evil. Um we just call him like Dean Kane, Frank Whaley's Craig Bierks. Like they're just in that category of yeah. whatever that is. I, I, and to I, literalize I, I, what you're I, saying, the ca- that, that category of color would be like somewhere between diarrhea brown, pus yellow, vomit green, like somewhere in that kind of color spectrum, but also on like a 3D axis of it. Speaking of that, let's let's jump to let's jump to what the what this movie is actually fucking about because uh, it's kind of interesting. So uh, Lovecraft was. Uh, a fan of describing the indescribable, so to speak. And he actually, uh, we've done previous months. Very specifically, he was not a fan of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, 
He was a yes fan of making books about things you couldn't describe. Yes. But, yes. like, the sort of unfair thing that I think gets lobbed at him is uh, him just uh, almost throwing up his hands and saying, oh, it was, too, it was too awful to describe, which is not actually how Lovecraft works. Yeah. Um, he has a few stories, uh, early stories, where he does that. Um, but as his stories sort of develop and he comes into his own, and this is actually Lovecraft's favorite story of his own, uh, someone who's famously very uh, critical of his own work. And uh, this is one of his, like, most, uh, obviously, most adapted works. There's Oh, we, I also missed um, Creepshow segment, uh, the Jordy Barrel segment, where Stephen King is, is uh, goes, meteor shit! Um, that, that's great. Uh, and also Annihilation is directly or indirectly, um, uh, adapting the idea of, of color out of space, whether it knows yeah, it or Yeah, and, uh, I just listened I to another about podcast it. about Annihilation and it was a joke about like, that is like 20 years after color out of space. Yes, yes. Um, the farm, uh, what happens when the, the, the infection on the farm goes, you know, even further out of the farm into a whole fucking state park, kind of. Yeah. Um, so, um, my point bit was uh, that this is a story that's, that's captivated people's minds for a very long time. It was one of Lovecraft's favorite, but what is it ultimately about? And what Lovecraft, instead of saying, oh, it was indescribable, it was indescribable, but he actually comes up with this kind of clever idea that, that the, the threat is this force dash color that operates so outside of our reality that we can't we can't it's not just that we can't register it on a visual spectrum it's that it's operating almost on a different dimension to our visual spectrum like yeah the human eye has has very many limitations but this isn't saying something like uh, i actually sent a video to you two earlier that was basically talking about how pigeons can see certain things in the vr spectrum and helps them identify one another that's why when you see a pigeon and they have sort of that reflective almost battery acid looking color um they uh, or puddles in the street that you know a pigeon has been bathing in. You see that sort of battery acid color. Uh, they can almost detect one another from 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 that. Like this goes beyond even that level of like being able to detect like a, a VR spectrum with your eyes. Like this is this is that this this color itself has broken free of of our reality and is infecting everything from the earth on up. Uh, and uh, the victims of that is a uh, is a family. And spoiler alert: the color is kind of like a pink, pink purple. I think they do a good thing. job of like having the pink that kind of reframes reality around. Like it, it's tough to do that. Although I did think of the same thing when it's like Lovecraft being like it's indescribable, like all these things, and be like, but it's it's like pinkish. It's pinkish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but I get it, right? Like, because, like, I mean, I'm not colorblind, but, like, if you explain, like, what blue is to someone who's blue-green colorblind, like, it's not that, like, inconceivable among people that they could – there could be a color they don't quite – that doesn't quite register with them this uh, in a way that, like, uh, that, that other colors do. And so, like, I, I actually – like, there's a lot of, I think, hand-wringing, not from you, Peter, but from people about, like, well, what could it mean to have an undescribable color? It's like, well, I don't know. Just have someone who can't see that, co like, colors on our actual existing re real visible spectrum. I think that's, I think that's kind of funny only because even with colors we know, like, I remember when there were pictures of people painting stuff in the blackest black and like you read that and you're like okay what's that mean and then you see pictures of it, you're like oh that literally looks like a void like it's yeah, crazy what that means black. or what yeah. it well it's, like, it's also like the first time you have like uh, you're in seventh grade and someone explains like the color paradox to you like how do you know that your red is is peter's red like, yeah 
You know, it's like, yeah, that does make sense. Like, color is something that is not um, the same from person to person. We know that by people, uh, including like my brother is a blue green colorblind. Like, he just cannot tell the difference between that. And for me, it's so weird when you take those tests that like how that works. But I think that's like there's something like 10% of the population that's blue green colorblind. Like, so, or not blue green, but colorblind, colorblind. in some in some in some capacity like it is it's one of those things that like you walk around with people that the color pa- paradox so to speak isn't some a, a weird way to fuck with your friends when you're 12 it's just like oh that's how i exist like yeah my yeah your your green doesn't look like what i see when you say green yeah i remember playing with swatches as, as a even earlier than that like first to fourth grade and being like i'm gonna come up with a new color and uh guys just so you know i, I failed um i didn't come up with a new color it was always like a kind of green yeah I call this one red. Yeah, most red. colors are a kind of brown. Once you, yeah. start once you add enough colors. I will say yeah. I think it's interesting how many, like, I don't know the actual percentage of people who are colorblind, but it was interesting. There was, as silly as it sounds, the first person who I confirmed, like, as an adult knew, like, oh, you're colorblind. It was interesting because it was in high school and it wasn't until our senior year and we were playing video games in somebody's basement and it was a basketball game and underneath the players have colored rings to show which person's which. <laughs> And one guy was not playing well, and we weren't, like, drinking or anything like that. We were just hanging out, and people kept dogging on him. And finally, he was like, can I switch to this color? Because I am color. He's like, I'm actually colorblind. I do not know which of these two I am, like, this entire game, whatever. And I was like, oh, shit. I've known this person for three years, and at no point – and he was, like, being genuine, and it was sincere. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't, like, the closest friends with him. I was like, oh, that's it's so weird that – a lot of, a, a significant portion of people are colorblind but you would never know it because it's not like they just like walk around saying it what's this yeah. what is this <laughs> if red or orange looked red and orange looked, looked the, the same, same for you yes like what what would that actually change in your life exactly like, not not much even like a stoplight type thing like i know it's yellow and not orange but you you know you you know the position of where the light is yes. and that's what you would you would look for so it's only in like I think that's why, like, the most times we talk about, like, accessibility and um, when it comes to colorblindness is in video games because those are times that you need to recognize a lot of times colors in order to identify things, to, but to identify things to, like, take action. And when you aren't able to do that the same way that non colorblind people um can it actually like limit your ability to enjoy said product so yeah there there has been some really good games like um last of us part two i think peter was one where like and you know regardless of anything else had a lot of like options for like if you're colorblind here's how you can change this text if you're you know i do like when i see that there are various colorblind accessibility like settings because you're like great like it, it seems like it's something that's not difficult to implement and it's just good to see you're like great why not take yeah, care of those and, people? And, and ma- it makes a ton of sense. But yeah, I can totally see why it would never come up unless you're either A, in a painting class or some kind of art class potentially and just like – This bowl of oranges in a, a red bl- black backdrop. Just like, hmm. Yeah, maybe just being asked to like pick a color. Like, But I guess, yeah, that, I mean that, that probably comes up more when you're in second grade than it does in adult life minus video games. So, yeah. Yeah. And like I, I was teasing about, oh, it's kind of a pinkish purple. I also did this for Die Farb when we covered the, the that a few years ago. Um, well, I, I think Die Farb's yeah. most interesting choice is that since we can't um, – since we can't – come up with a color that matches it let's make the whole movie in black and white except this color which 
the characters react to as if their world exists in black and white, and this is more vibrant than anything they've ever seen. They can't understand it. And we're also looking at it with like a, 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 a that sort of attention, right? Like yeah. we, your eye can't really draw anywhere else in the frame. Like it's kind of, it's kind of a clunky version of it, but it's, 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 it's clunky clever is what I would say. Like I would it, say it, actually the best version, like, which it seems like it's like that Sin City kind of thing where it's a yeah. little, it's a little like, all right, we get it. We get the gimmick, but you know, it does accomplish the, the ultimate goal, which is that emotionally this thing is, is, is so escaped from the reality that it exists in that, uh, you can't you 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 can't really just make it a new color. John Carpenter described wanting to adapt color out of space, um, and he he, you know, John Carpenter is famously lazy, but he uh, he he also said, you know, one of the reasons I didn't never try to do color out of space directly is I couldn't figure out how to crack that that damn color thing. Um, he's and he, his idea was to basically have it be um, tears in the film almost like like cigarette burns in the film mm-hmm. uh which he ended up using in the film he didn't directly credit this but he ended up using that effect in cigarette burns um when certain certain sort of effects have a cigarette burn quality on the on the film that like the reality is tearing down itself and that's sort of you're, you're watching the the film reel itself tear it down but um the way that they do it in this movie that they do it in die farb and they do it in from beyond and um I think I think just from beyond, uh, they make the the unearthly color this vibrant neon, almost like like magenta or fuchsia. Which, which in fairness, like this is gonna this is gonna sound like real old man shit, but it's true. Like I remember when those colors were introduced in Crayola, and like kids, including myself, I was like second and third grade, like. Magenta was like the crayon that you wore out because it felt such like a new color. So like I actually like get it from that perspective. I'm not surprised that they use that type of color because I like no one was like grabbing towards forest green the way they were for magenta in in the second grade. So there is something like weirdly compelling to the visual spectrum about that color. So as somebody who hasn't seen Die Far, one is it worth seeing, and two does this does no. this color. Okay, so then I'm okay with asking. Not the same now. Question. It was worth seeing if you loved the story before and you didn't and have the Richard Stanley color didn't exist. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah. dude, does this magenta color even in this movie start overwhelming, or is it kind of used? No, it's just that the whole movie's lightly. in black and white. No, I know. I'm kind of looking at pictures right now, but just like, oh, does does that color, that magenta color, come into play a lot, or is it kind of used sparingly? Sparingly, it's an interesting yeah. concept, at the very least. But if it's not worth yeah. seeing, then I'll, I'll pass because I think if if either of you guys had recommended it, I'd be like, all right, I'll check it out. But I I, I think if you're in love with the story, it's fun to see different iterations of mm. it. But this movie is like. Uh, you know, not to tip my we, hat. We much, weren't that this keen. Is, I think this is the this is the um, the Definitive. Lovecraft adaptation yeah. that I feel like most accomplishes what the original book was set out to do. Yeah, um, I think while that's also true. being a kick-ass movie. The Resurrected is is pretty close too, but um, but this this one I think takes the cake. Yeah, I, I think that's that was. I mean, we did a whole double month of Lovecraft adaptations, and a lot of our take was like, we love Reanimator and From Beyond, but they are taking off a, a point of what Lovecraft is doing. This definitely expands beyond the scope of a Lovecraft story, which most adaptations need to do. Um, but it it is um, 
it is both the most successful, most compelling as a as a movie, and then also the most like you are getting the gist of the book. Uh, just just on a bigger scale. I mean, even fucking Whisper in the Darkness, which is made by the Lovecraft Society, like adds a whole new third act to it. So like, and and I think this movie kind of does that too, along with kind of modernizing uh, modernizing it. But I I do love the way like as the color gets more intense, that you know, using like. I don't want to make this sound like disparaging because I don't, but like at the end of the movie, when things start going into almost like an Apple After Effects type thing, we're like, we're just going to drag the film and stretch it. Like, it's a cheap special effect because it can be easily done in post, but it's incredibly effective with like the way they understand that it's not just the brightness of the color, but the way it, it, it truly like the intensity changes and bends reality in a way that um um which we'll get to in more detail but like the way they they display that by having like everything become out of focus and sucked in and stretched out like it does weirdly work like yeah. it works to kind of show like how uh combined with the flashing light like this this movie does a good job of displaying a color as an as a threat I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I think that I, I think that the, uh, the I'm not saying he he stole it from Stephen uh, from um, John Carpenter's cigarette burns, but um, that that was you know John Carpenter's take because you have to actually almost destroy the film to make the color make sense. Uh, yeah. That the color is so strong that like not only can our eyes not conjure it, like our our. Um, our concept of film will fail to conquer it. And I thought of that. I thought of John Carpenter. I thought of cigarette burns actually using like cigarette burns to kind of, uh, you know, destroy the film. I thought of obviously, uh, you know, uh, this movie is like, I think the most successful version of it. But I also thought of there's a segment in VHS, the anthology horror movie, where um, this demonic slasher character is so indescribable oh, yeah, that that the yeah. camera actually processes it as glitchy distortions and frames and distortion and it's such a great effect because while i love like you know oh this slasher villain has a new crazy design like i'm sick of him like oh cool he's got overalls now oh cool he's got a gas mask on like it, it, there's very few that can shock me what can shock me is like this idea of this like almost blurry image but like the blood that's dripping from the, his victims or its victims yeah. is like that's crystal clear right yeah. like we can understand the blood and the chaos but the actual figure is completely obscured and this movie sort of i don't know i, I doubt the movie was inspired by any of those previous ones however um i love that it it decided uh the way to warp reality is actually to lean into the artificiality of film and to make it yeah which Dive Farber does too, right? Like yeah. that's the whole thing. Yeah, and I do. Yeah. I, I do digital do. artifacting and, and the frame and the the image stretching and the image almost almost snapping. Like that stuff is that stuff is great, and it and it actually like conquers conquers the the, the hardest part of Lovecraft, which is how do you depict the indescribable? Um, mm -hmm. Which I had one problem with Lovecraft Country, and that's that sometimes. The indescribable craziness is depicted in crystal clear, almost like Walking Dead style crispness. Um, mm -hmm. And and that kind of bothered me because I was like, man, that's a fucking shoggoth. Like, it's supposed to, like, break your brain to look at it. Like, all you can do is run away from it. Um, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> Go on, Ryan. No, I was just going to say I agree. Uh, I mean, I agree with 
pretty much everything both you guys are saying, but I did I did like that uh, they did a really good job of, like you said, making a color threatening. Like obviously it manifests itself as the meteorite or the bug or or when it's taking over various characters or whatever. But yeah, but it never seems to be one thing. You know what I mean? Like it never seems to be. I mean the the wife and the youngest son get fused by some beam because of the alpacas, but like then certain people are going down to the well, but then there's also like, it doesn't seem like something you can escape and it's not coming from one section. Like it's like you said, it's, it, they do a good job of making you kind of afraid. Yeah. Of between, yeah between mysterious color. You're just like, okay, they're yeah. in their own element now. Yeah. Between the color and then they do a great job with the sound design too. And since most of the script was written in the mid nineties, it does. And I, and I just in general, like, I know you're not saying that, that, that Richard Stanley copied it from cigarette burns, but I do get the sense that like, uh, and I got the sense with him talking about Island of Dr. Moreau, like that Richard Stanley just has a very specific, uh, vision for this type of stuff. And I'm not surprised that like, he probably just not just gave a lot of thought to, but probably thought for 25 years of like, if I'm going to do the color, how do I depict the color? And it's it's based on that. It's not surprising that like the concept of the color as a threat is so wonderfully realized in like um, the way it sounds, the way it moves, the way it affects the film, the way it infects certain people like it. um it clearly had a lot of thought to how to um, terrify and, and cause the intensity to be overwhelming to the audience, and it's executed perfectly. Like, my complaints in this movie are, which are few, have nothing to do with, like, uh, the way that, like, the concept of a threatening color is depicted. And, again, even more impressive to the fact that this is a $3 million budget by a guy that hasn't made a fucking movie in 25 years. I like, not, yeah, I insane. I it was $3 million. That is, that's really impressive. It looks like a 20 to $50 movie. Yeah. 20 to $50 million movie. Like, yeah. I, I, what they did here was, was, was diabolical. I hope they make bad their budget in theaters. And then once it, you know, got to VOD and shutter, they, they made bank on it. But <laughs> yeah, um, cause he has, he has three Lovecraft scripts that he had written a long time ago. And he wants to make, he wants to make it a trilogy with the next one being the Dunwich Horror. So hopefully Elijah Wood shows up at that fucking castle again and is like, here's your Dunwich Horror money. Elijah Wood was talking about in a interview on the king cast um basically saying like yeah man when he gets the donut horror script in and you know nothing nothing uh when he he didn't say if there's nothing wrong with it he said when he gets the Dunwich horror script in we can start pre-production like awesome it, it sounds like it made enough money and uh you know they, they they're in the richard stanley business enough that they're like we we want our guy to to see a few of his more dreams out, and I bet you now after Lovecraft Country, which was yeah. uh, at least I've only seen the first four episodes, um, was really great. Uh, I, this sort of Lovecraft uh, fad will uh, hopefully lead to um, Dunmatore being an even bigger success than uh, Colorado Space. Can so. we? Say, I'm going to say one last thing as long as we're back on Elijah Wood, and then let's transition to the movie. Um, Peter, you and I have talked about this a lot. Like, why don't rich people do cool things with their money? Like, if I was rich, most of the things that I would spend money on, besides, like, house, blah, 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 car, college funds, would be, like, 
what do I want to exist that doesn't exist? Yes. And it wouldn't it wouldn't be like a rocket pack and be like, hey, that TV show they canceled. Hey, that uh, you know we've talked about a lot with uh, the dissolve where you know we met in the offshoot of that site getting canceled. Like I want that site back. I read it every day. How much would it cost if I was rich? Boom, done. To, 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 yeah, exactly. And um, and like Jeff Bezos is a really funny example where. Um, like he loved the expanse and they canceled the expanse, so he bought the expanse and kept making the expanse and like and those are their small asterisks. He he bought it back and I'm pretty sure its budget increased because that next season was the prettiest season of the expanse. Yeah, because he was probably watching it like I wish there was some better special effects on my favorite show. And what's more surprising to me is that like that doesn't that shit doesn't happen more often because the idea that like rich people don't have uh, wants and needs that can't just be purchased with money. Like it's, it can be purchased in money, but it has like uh, artistic or critical value. It's surprising that there's not more of those stories. So, but the fact that Elijah Wood, who loves fucked up horror shit, eventually decided to like pool his money with some other friends and be- start a production company that makes cool fucked up horror shit, and occasionally is amazing. video games too. Just in that, yeah, like. That feels like, yeah, why wouldn't – why don't more people do this? So, again, not to continue to codify why we gave him the A-plus uh, – Sweetie Pie. S- Sweetie Pie ranking. Um, but uh, – He's yeah, an A-plus Sweetie us- Pie. He's using – yeah, he's using his money for good. Yeah, yeah. I was going to call it the Bezos thing because, like, while I have uh, a great loathsome uh, feel for Jeff Bezos, like – the fact that I was really into The Expanse and then one day it was like, oh, it got canceled. And then a little bit later it was like, Jeff Bezos saved The Expanse. I was like, hot fucking dog. Like, <laughs> for once one of these billionaires, like, I wish, I want to find out what every billionaire's favorite TV show is that they, like, demand more of. Like, I, I would love to know, like, Bill Gates is really into this old house and he's like, get Bob Vila on the phone right now. Just keep financing PBS. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Gates is one thing to finance PBS. He's just like arguing with like, but it is like so, it is dumb. Senator it's like Kentucky. Like, yeah. Now I know you don't like Sesame street because I don't know. They didn't hang a gay guy in the street last season, but have you considered Oscar the Crouch? Fascist Muppet. God, he hates all the other Muppets. It's <laughs> it's tolerance to accept him. <laughs> what is Warren Buffett's favorite? It, it, Warren, Warren Buffett's like, bring back little orphan Annie. It's it's possible that maybe we just didn't get the notices. And like the reason like fucking General Hospital's been on for 50 years is like Warren Buffett. Or that one weird Vegas Republican guy is like more General Hospital. <laughs> Never take it up. Like he's like all my children. Another, another. All right, are you guys ready to talk more about color? No, you out of space. <laughs> color out of space. The co- the color. Color out of space. Color out of space. The video.
I really am pissed off that this movie didn't have a line of Nicolas Cage just being like, right as he cocks a shotgun, be like, you get this color out of my space. Or something. Something <laughs> that's just so eye-rolling and like, God damn it. Oh, God. he's got a few. I uh, I really like Nicolas Cage. Um, there's a choice in this movie that actually is not as omnipresent as I remembered it from the first time I watched it. But I'm just not, like, I like. I like a Nicolas Cage freakout. I don't like a Nicolas Cage with a weird Valley Girl voice. But anyways, not nothing against Valley Girls. I just don't think it works here. Aaron, I know you've kind of mentioned that this was originally written in like the 90s and that shows do you, when you're saying that are you mostly referencing dialogue specific or no oh, so it, it was written in the 90s i think the part that really like screams there's there's parts of it like cell phones do come into play i know that's not like a oh they don't have as much cell phone usage and stuff like that the parts that like really scream 90s to me is like the goth uh the goth daughter and the stoner son true and then also like uh tommy chung for example <laughs> in the screams a little bit of like uh 90s guest stars but it it feels like if instead of trying to call at various times from cell phones that uh they were trying to call from their house phone that this would feel right at home in 1996 like just everything about it screams that to me like even the cold like the cities are too bustly i need to go move out to my dad's like it's such a 90s like That's- trope that doesn't strike me as that at all, though. Like the the. Uh, uh, the I mean, he did say that he had written this in, initially in the nineties. In, in urban urban flight is like always a thing. Like every generation has a moment where they decide, like we're done with cities, or at least a portion of them decide they're done with cities, right? Like sure. I mean, I'm, again, I'm not. I'm not trying to say like, oh, this is my theory. He said he wrote it in the nineties. Oh yeah, no, so, and I do agree. I, yeah. I think it would be very easy to. I mean, because you still have a TV, you can still have a computer screen. Even if you wanted to, like, literally just cut out cell phones, that would be probably enough. Like, all yeah, right, I mean, really, it's it's the it's the kids' aesthetic that really like screams that to me. Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, we have the goth girl who's a Wiccan. Like, not again, not that the Alexandrian. Like it's bad. Like, it is. It is just the. <laughs> Like, if this came out in 96, it would have come up opposite the craft, where a lot of that just felt more at home. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, well, I, I, I... It's not let's, insult. Let's do, let's no, no, do, I knew you didn't mean an insult. Let's yeah. talk about this now before we... Sure. Before I get to the recap. This is uh, Lovecraft blending with uh, occultism. So... Lovecraft would talk about cults and he would talk about so he loves like people out in the woods doing cult shit. But uh, Lovecraft was a very conservative guy and and a very scientifically focused guy. Um, And he did not particularly uh, delve into um, the the mechanisms of occultism. Um, He liked to conjure cults because he found them them sort of scary. The idea of religion run amok. Um, but he didn't really like care about occult ritual and how it particularly worked, or at least in his books, it's very like hand wavy and it's more founded in American folklorism, um, such as uh, Dreams in the Witch House is is sort of indicative of that. Um, he's not actually like delving into what Wiccan or Alexandrian, uh, you know, occult uh, 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 practices are. He's yeah. uh, he, he's taking American folklore on what witchiness is. In um in uh Charles Dexter Ward, uh, he references witchiness, and it, it's mostly just like a way to add some uh, cop some spookiness from American folklore. And what Richard Stanley is doing here is uh, Richard Stanley, uh, who is very much interested in the occult, 
Uh, yeah. He's very much interested in, uh, you know, what the occult actually means. So not sort of non-traditional religious practice. Uh, religious practice is gathering knowledge from sort of outside sources from mainstream religion. And Richard Stanley has been interested in a long time. He claimed for a period of time to be looking for the Holy Grail. Um, he's, he, he's, he's been interested in that his entire life and what he infuses this script with instead of, uh, scientificness, um, scientificity, um, that Lovecraft was super into, like there's a whole section in the short story where, um, scientists come and look at the rock and they're taking like chemistry, uh, samples from it. And Lovecraft yeah. is talking about the specific sort of characters of the rock. Stanley has no fucking interest in the chemistry of the rock. Stanley's not interested in like talking to a geologist just to make sure he gets the rock words right. Um, Stanley instead is saying, I want my central character because I'm interested in the occult and the way that I would, um, the way I would uh, internalize um, sort of a, a cosmic horror if it came to my home is I would uh, view it through a, a sort of a Wiccan occult spiritual ritual. And like he references in Lost Souls that uh, put he put some sort of um, Wiccan or occult curse. He went to a witch doctor and oh, put a yeah. curse <laughs> on people. And that, and that like, uh, jumping back to his history uh, really quick. Which again is, is, the, is the A plus sweetie pie way to deal with being fucked over um, and out of a career like Right, like, I'm not going to slash their tires. I'm not going to yell at them. <laughs> I'm going to visit a little witch doctor, put a little curse on them. Just an yeah, itty-bitty curse on them. witch doctor, I tell them what to do. Yeah. Um, and so my point here is that, yes, you're right, Aaron. Like, this is not something that Lovecraft put in. This is something that um, Stanley put in there. So let's, so let's talk about that. Like, Stanley made his main character, somebody who's interested in the occult. Um, she's reading the Necronomicon, which is actually not supposed to be the actual Necronomicon. It's, it, it was this uh, series of occult rituals um, that like new American occultists wrote and they just slapped the name Necronomicon on it to make it sound cooler. Um, but Lavinia is doing spells. She's carving uh, words of power and, and runes into her flesh. Like Lavinia is trying to infuse herself with the power of the cosmos and it fucking fails. And that's what scares Stanley, right? Like, so in a sense, I see it as like a 90s, like the craft style era thing. Because he yeah. also, he loved, uh, what's her face from the craft? Um for uh Faruka Balk? For, yeah, Faruza? yeah, yeah. Faruza Balk. Uh, Faruza Balk. Like he loved her. Um and like he loved those those kind of like witchy movies, but also in the other sense, like he was a genuine occultist as far as as we can tell, you know, based on his stuff. So in a sense I see the 90s, but in a, in another sense, I see raw Richard Stanley on film. Yeah. Well, his first movie was a blend, even though I haven't seen it, I'm familiar with the concept of hardware, which was a blend of basically like occult evil and uh, science. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, hardware, um, a kind of classic sci-fi movie, but it's it's very much about like how um, a creator's vision is manifested in, in the metal. Yeah. Like uh, and that like you can it, it's a it's a thelemic sort of occultism. It's saying like my will. Yep. My, my will will create something and that yeah. thing backfires. Um, and Dust Devil is very surreal and dreamy and is very much like not a literal movie. Uh, I love both those movies, by the way, um, but it's not a literal movie. It's very much grounded in a sort of like uh, spirity, uh, uh, ethereal kind of quality. It's it's not really about like, you know, it's not the Hitcher. The Hitcher feels nuts and bolts, right? Um, Dust Devil is, is more, more kind of ghosty. 
Yeah, so what happens besides uh, Lavinia's uh, rituals? Yeah, so uh, Colorado Space. Uh, the cool thing about the this one is that it kind of is recapping the short story. Short story is about a family of the gardeners. We are uh, a surveyor is is uh, coming out to the land to check out uh, the water table. The Gardner family uh, have inherited this land in the in the film. I uh, have inherited this land from their father um, or Nathan's father, the father's uh, the grandfather. Um, and there's some family resentment at them going out there. Um, none of the kids particularly like it. Um, the misses uh, played by Julie Richardson, uh, Teresa. She is. She's like a, a wealth manager, it seems like, right? She's she's watching stocks very closely. She might be a short seller. That might be why there's like such stress in, in her job. But I, it sounds like she's wealth management because she has specific clients that she's catering I to. I feel like they kept it vague. It's client-based and she needs to be able to access the internet. But like that's all it really matters. Like it's a stressful job. It's a, clearly she's high up, like that kind of well, stuff. Well, yeah, because I imagine when the script was written, it was extra stressful because, uh, you know, at most you have a 14.4 MPS <laughs> modem. So, like, even by the time you get online through... He's just tearing out pieces of the script that are just AOL connection sounds. He's like, this doesn't... Fuck- <laughs> I was going to distort this. This doesn't make any sense anymore. You oh know what? God. Since we moved out here, I'm not getting the AOL disk to keep changing my accounts. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, Netscape Navigator has not reached this area, honey. I had this whole thing about he was going to download this LimeWire file. And- <laughs> Lime what, in 1996? Sorry, Napster. Is that better? No. Not even? No. When was Napster? Six. Ah, fucking. What? When was Napster? Napster's 2000. It was all the way. No, 1996 is is like, um, like, I remember when we first got the internet, we weren't even sure how to, like, look up anything. I was going to say, that's like, that's like the computer mouse. Search engines weren't, like, search engines weren't, uh, like, a huge thing yet. Like, oh, great. How do you go to stuff? And so you'd find like a, a main homepage of the internet provider that'd be like, kids. It just looked like a website that had links to other things. It was insane. Uh, Napster anyway, so she, went to, she went to sell stocks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but she, she needs, I need to get on the internet, Nathan. Um, <laughs> She she needs her web uh, to do to do her job. It sounds it's like, like she's, it's she's like her phone doesn't have the internet. Like, yeah, she's the, the, she's the breadwinner in the family, right? Um, yeah. But uh, it's sort of a sweet little family. There's Jack Jack, who's the the little guy. Benny is really interested in space. He's also a stoner. Uh, Lavinia is very much interested in spells and the occultism. Um, and uh, oh, the part I didn't mention, Teresa uh, is recovering from cancer. She, it sounds seems like she maybe had a double mastectomy. Um, and is, is sort of, you know, uh, on the, on that thin line where like her energy is not what it, it used to be. She's trying to recover her career from sort of losses, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, high, high pressure for Teresa. Um, and, uh, she's in a situation where it seems like she's basically just following Nathan's dream. Um, so, uh, all that said, it will come back. Uh, a meteor strikes in their front yard one night uh, as uh, I, I, we don't really need to get into it, but the fa- the family is all in various states of sort of uh, finding comfort, right? How how long can you publish these notes afterwards? <laughs> there, yeah, you're doing like Roger Ebert, like where he goes frame by frame in some film festival over a week. I'm already twenty minutes in the movie. 
No, I know, but just the way you're like, for example, my thesis on this moment. My notes say like, husband and wife smoochies. Does that Yeah. Does yeah, that fully just, encompass Yeah, they're they're smooching it up. Uh Lavinia is listening to metal. Like they're all they're all kind of finding their own their own thing. Anyways, regardless, uh meteor lands in the front yard. Um and this meteor carries the color out of space. This is going to continue to fuck up the movie in various ways. Um Do you think it's mean to criticize your co-host on your movie podcast for being too passionate about a movie that that you also are very passionate about? I think you're good. I, I would say fuck that guy. I think I'm insulting myself for being a dick for no reason. <laughs> no, I think I think you're good. It's a good old fashioned ribbon. Anyway, so we find out at this point that when the meteor crashes that the mayor is an asshole. The mayor is trying to sell the land uh, out from underneath Nathan because um, he inherited it from his father. And the mayor essentially at some point came in and said, like, you know, you don't want to move out here. I'll buy the land for me because she wants to buy out all the land and then sell um those those parcels of land to a uh hydroelectric company so they can build mm-hmm. a, a water dam and just flood that whole area um, that'll, that'll come back at the end you know the media comes they see nathan as sort of a kook uh nathan feels very embarrassed about looking like a kook um but the, the, the issue is that the family is slowly being infected by this color um signs of insanity are starting to show but they're sort of flaring up and dying down um nathan is starting to become more of an alcoholic uh teresa is uh, becoming obsessed with her job uh, jack jack is becoming obsessed with uh some sort of creature in the well um lavinia is convinced everything is fucked the water is fucked the, the air is fucked like we need to get out of here um benny's fine uh there's also a hippie that lives on their land sort of like a squatter that's been there long enough that like nobody wants to kick him out uh called ezra uh played by tommy chong and uh ezra is sort of our um our shamanistic voice in the movie uh who says you know like hey something weird's happening man like uh, something's not right uh under the earth i really wish though they would have uh got someone better for this I actually, I actually liked him. Yeah. I, I thought he did a good job of not being super chongy. Yeah, I liked him. Yeah. yeah. I think it's amazing, especially when you get to late in the movie and he has to do the whole diatribe from the book. Mm-hmm. That's so good. I will say. Yeah, I guess I just want someone better than Ezra. All right. All <laughs> right. You derailed me for that. It, I mean, that was a lot of anger directed at me. You did that. You did me dirty. I, I, I did. I did. I, I was just trying to keep going. On. <laughs> I, I did you both very dirty. I'm, I'm aware. Uh, I just didn't. <laughs> Tommy Chung is great. I will say that I didn't realize until right now that like real shit starts happening. And Benny essentially is just like, I don't think it's supposed to be nighttime right now. But like, <laughs> other than that, things are fine. Like He's like, I mean, he's clearly but like, he's like pretty much just going about his day. He's like, it's fucking alpacas keep getting out. But, you know, sometimes it's nighttime when it's not supposed to be. But we're, we're figuring it out. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I think I think the only way that you could describe this movie is a pro. Like, again, this is, this feels 90s to weed having a magical power against him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think he, I think he's so used to things being weirdsies that all of a sudden he's like. Yeah, I'm losing track of... All right, well, I'm losing track of time. Night is day, day is night. Oh, shit, I was supposed to do that thing, and I don't, I don't remember if I actually did it. Like, there's a there's a pretty good theory that, that Benny is just high all the time. Yeah, yeah. He, he just doesn't know what he has or hasn't done. I think so. I think, he's like, I think he's like, I swear I did it, but then, of course, everybody's talking to him like, come on, you stoner, get it together. And he's like, I swear I did it. I, I swear I'm getting it together. 
He knows how is it how is it's going to sound the moment it comes out of his mouth. Yeah, so he just doesn't say it. He's like, I know this sounds weird, but I got lost in the backyard for a period of time. Anyways, so um, there's not a whole lot of like plot and incident here, but um, one thing to note is that the family is 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 uh, sort of falling into <clears throat> madness um, and is trying to find ways to sort of carry on. Um, the uh, there's also strange bugs, strange flowers, like the whole flora and fauna. Are, are I really like. In case we don't get back to it, I love the way that they introduce the concept that like it's infected the ground, and uh, that was a big part of the book, right? All of a sudden, they have mm-hmm. these huge fucking apples. I like how that's like it's a short period of time, but it's subtly like, oh, here's a like watching it this time. I noticed how um, slowly they introduced that, like you. You saw, if you looked close enough, that the all of a sudden the apples on those trees are fucking huge and bright colored. And, oh, you go past this evergreen tree and you – like if you notice, there's like almost a neon blue vine that, that kind of with some leaves that grows up that like uh, – and then you like see obviously the part that they do call attention to is a couple of the, the flowers that they think might be perennials growing up. And then like a couple scene later, it's a little more obvious and a scene later, it gets a little more obvious and now – Nicholas Cage is picking that fruit and notices how big those fucking tomatoes are and stuff like that. And then, like, just chomping into it. A scene later, him. you're fucking in Alice in Wonderland all of a sudden. Like, it, oh. it does a really good job of, um, of of indicating this is happening in a way that I didn't even really notice how slowly they were introducing. It definitely slips you into, like, the new environment, yeah. which is cool. Because that's what's happening to the yeah. characters in the movie. Yeah. They're, they're walking past, too, and, like, Oh, that's kind of weird, but not noticing the three other things that are also really weird. I think the most relatable part of Nathan is uh, the two most relatable parts of Nathan, which I don't know if I've ever seen a Nicolas Cage movie. I'd be like, that's relatable. Maybe Raising Arizona It is uh, one when his wife is just like the Internet's broken. Nathan, he's like, I swear I fixed the dish this morning. Like that's that is that is me and my wife. Um, the the <laughs> the constant sort of like. Uh, we've we've got it now. We're on a different ISP, but for a period of time, like I would go to work, and then she'd be like, "The internet was fucked all day," and then I'd get on my laptop, and I'm like, "It's fine. I don't know what you're talking about." Uh-huh. <laughs> um, that was very relatable. And then uh, the second one is Nathan uh, eating that crazy huge fruit, and God. it just tastes like shit. So and him having funny. him having a fucking meltdown and tossing it in the trash is extremely relatable because, like, as somebody who's not as handy as my dad and not as like. I don't know, like, I, I don't have a whole lot of, like, technical skill, but I try really hard. Um, whenever I fuck up a project like that, especially, I just became a new homeowner. Um, and, like, I'll, I'll be like, well, something's broken. And I'll be like, all right, well, let me try and fix it. And then I f- completely fuck it up. And I'm like, god damn it. Like, I watched a bunch of YouTube videos. I followed all the instructions. I didn't do anything wrong. Like, even when he says that, he's like, I did everything right. I don't know. And he's just, like, chomping into him while his wife is also trying to tell him to, like, fix the internet. And he's just not even addressing that. And he's like, I'm, I'm having my own moment here about something extremely relatable like i i've never i've never been a gardener but like that sort of feeling of like i put so much time and effort into this thing and it's still fucked up like well and we know we know from the book too it's supposed to taste like nothing like ash yeah yeah and and that's my favorite detail from the book is that like the earth is producing these insane massive fruit but they they're just sickening and they're gross i will say um on the second time because i i watched it once before and then i watched it this time the dialogue is I I think it's feels super authentic and I actually really like yeah. I really love 
a lot of lines that are semi-background. Like, upon the second time, I yeah. was literally sitting there, and some of my favorite lines are just ones where you're like, the second, the response, or the second part of the conversation, whatever, is background, but if you listen for it, it all feels super authentic to the characters, and I, I genuinely really enjoyed that. Yeah, agreed. The do- I mean, this is a extremely well-written movie, and it even, like, I don't even have a problem with, like I said, the Nicolas Cage, like, already being a little over the top at the beginning. It definitely has, like... It has the so, Jack Torrance thing. Jack Nicholson. I have the, I have the same thing. note. Now, keep in mind, I, I actually think there's no problem with that in The Shining. Same. Um, same. And I think there's no problem with that here. Um, uh, but, like, we'll talk about it. I keep alluding to it like it's a huge problem I have with the movie. But, like, the thing is, like, Nicolas Cage has some great Nicolas Cage... Nicolas Cage freakouts yes. in this movie that feel like at home like it's why you cast Nicolas Cage like when he can't start that fucking car and just has a complete meltdown so it's so good it's the weird uh, the weird freak outs that he decides to do with that voice which I get what he's going for um, and I guess I get what Richard Stanley's going for I just think it doesn't work but so anyway. I think that I think the, the 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 part in the car is amazing it's nothing in the movie is as good as his bathroom freak out at Mandy but that's um, what I was just know, thinking of right now too for yeah. some reason we, that we specific scene uh, those I mean those are the, his two there. best freakouts on um, film that I can yeah. think of and this is a man who just basically is, freaks out yeah my one problem with the Nathan freaking out um, or the one thing I really love about the Nathan freaking out scene in the car um, is it reminds me of the part in the original short story where he punches out his horse and calls it a cocksucker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was the second time around. I was also thinking when when he calls from the hospital and there's like a staticky. There are there are some words you can hear. And, oh yeah. And I wasn't sure this time around. I was like I was paying more attention. I was like, oh maybe maybe later when he's having one of these spazzy moments, he like that dialogue comes out and like that would be kind of cool, whatever. He doesn't, but one of the times the one of the few words he can hear is cocksucker and it never comes back, but like it's pretty clear. So I think that that's obviously directly because of the original story. Yeah. Yeah, I I uh, I agree with you. So let's talk about let's talk about. Um, wait, let me let me wrap up. Let's the, get to wrap up recap, and then we'll get into, yeah. we'll, we'll launch right into Nick. This Cage. is still um, mid wrap up. <laughs> yeah. So so um, similar to the story, uh, the original story, um, the uh, mother starts to go kind of first, which is sort of yeah. echoing uh, a couple things in uh, both Lovecraft and Stanley's life. Uh, Lovecraft, uh, his mother and his father both. Um, were institutionalized at certain points um, and uh, suffered from, you know, mental illness that, uh, you know, may have eventually uh, haunted him in a more serious or, you know, I, I guess a more notable manner. Um, but uh, he died kind of young. Um, but uh, Stanley's mother died of cancer um, and she used to read him Lovecraft stories growing up. And like, that's part of his like deep connection to it. And Stan and part of partly why Stanley is like, so interested in this, this cancer angle. And, um, he, he, it's a, this is a really strange story. He tells on, um, on the Spectre Vision podcast with Elijah Wood, um, which you've got to hear, um, where, uh, he, he essentially said like they went and they found a meteor and he like fed his mother water from a meteor or something to help cure her cancer but at some point it it kept her alive well beyond when doctors said it would 
but she she changed as a person on the inside. It was like her soul had left, but her body stuck around in a in a, in a strange way. Like it is a fucking strange story, and you got to hear it straight from Stanley's mouth to actually like suss it out. But uh, anyways, the the mother figure in this, um, very in a sort of I don't I want to say Oedipal way, but in a sort of like Freudian way, the mother joins with Jack Jack in a in a in a flash of the light, joins with Jack Jack into a uh, John Carpenter's The Thing esque monster the alpacas join into a sort of a conglomerate form uh in, in the barn and uh, uh the family has to kind of figure out what the fuck to do with the, the the you know the youngest son and the mother together they move her to the attic um nicholas cage starts to have more freakouts um and throughout this whole time the water the the water guy um is kind of uh, just sort of investing in the land him and him and uh, lavinia so his name's Ward. Him and Lavinia have sort of a thing. Ward comes back to um, to go check in on the house, essentially, see what the fuck is going on. And uh, everything is very fucked. Time has gone timey-wimey. Um, the, it's, uh, what's his name? Uh, Benny says it's sort of like they're approaching a black hole. Like time seems yeah. to be looping back on itself. Um, and everyone seems to be going crazy. Uh, Ward returns with the sheriff basically, cause they're finding fucked up monsters sort of around the surrounding area. And, uh, he can't get any help from the County other than the sheriff. They go to the house. Everything is fucked. Uh, Nicholas Cage has a meltdown where he kills the alpaca, uh, at one point, he tries to kill Lavinia by feeding her to the mother creature or basically saying, like, you know, go join them. Um, but then work. comes back and kills. Comes back and saves. Mother. Mother, and the mother boy. Mother that, okay. In case we don't get back, because it had the biggest Nicolas Cage line delivery laugh in my theater, which is because he keeps saying he's seeing his like my family's right here and they're not there. And as the sheriff and ward walk in and. Um, you think the sheriff has finally shot and saved Lavinia from the mom fusion with the son. Uh, and instead, it's Nicolas Cage has come back and shot him and just goes, <laughs> they're not my family, <laughs> and walks away. And, like, I loved that. Like, that was such a good, like, it, it had stayed away from Nicolas Cage joke moments and does one at the time where you need a little bit of a sigh of relief before the movie just fucking steamrolls to 20 minutes of overwhelming intensity. Well, because he has a line now. a minute or two earlier or later that already says, oh, uh, Benny lives in the well now and I got shivers. Like, yeah, because they I, walk I, I in he's like, what down. do you mean? She's right here. She's right here. Lavinia, say hi. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... I'm going like, to do this for the rest of the podcast and then tell me the voice is good. Oh, God. <laughs> So, so, uh, uh, oh, so, uh, uh, Ward is trying to save Lavinia. Lavinia said, there's no getting out. There's no getting out. They go to. Because they shoot his dad. Because he's going to shoot Ward. But he's. Sheriff shoots the dad. But he's not aiming at Ward, right? He's aiming at. It is very unclear. Okay. He's aiming at the. They saw sort of a a first person shot of the, the, the shotgun. It's sort of a misunderstanding. But Nicolas Cage is acting fucking insane. So, of course, the sheriff. For is gonna, sure. Like, no, no. I don't want you to kill Ward and your daughter. Also, I just watched you kill some version of your wife and son. So, yeah. I don't know what's going on. It'd be exactly. pretty hard to describe and be like, well, he lifted his shotgun. I just figured he was going to shoot at that bright light, not the people in front of him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, the the sheriff is very much a, uh, a you know a post twenty twenty depiction of a cop. 
um, where he does absolutely nothing except for uh, shoot a, uh, a, a, a helpful person. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Lavinia, um, Lavinia stays with the land. Uh, Ward, uh, Ward runs off. Um, to, they try and find Ezra. Ezra has died as well and has turned into sort of like a, a, a creature of the color. Um, God, I, I, love, I love this scene. Yeah. It's so good. Um, it, it, Ward has uh, Ward has turned. Um, sorry, Ward has not turned. Ward goes in the house and all of a sudden the whole family is back alive and in some sort of like a creature of the color kind of like. But, the, but they're in the seams of the frame. Like it's like when he looks away, he barely sees them, and then all of a sudden, off the corner of his eye, they're there. They like exist in periphery only. Yes, yes, they're they're they existing almost in like an alternate dimension, a different time, a, a different version of that. The color is displaying a different version of them, almost like the color is while it's tearing this. Would you say it's out of space? This color is out of space, and this color is out of line. Okay, you don't you don't mess with. Oh, one thing family. too, uh, when Lavinia like becomes the 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 place where the color coalesces on before they go back in the house you actually see a little bit of vision of what you can um combine with ezra's thing of like they're not from here it's a color but it burns which is great uh but then you see like a little flash of the alien planet which normally would be something like um we criticized i think in ghosts of mars about how fucking dumb it was and unnecessary and here i love it (laughs) it's also again just impressive knowing the budget where you just see like a sea of mass interspersed with sandworms interspersed with potentially a throne (laughs) and then that's it there's no other um description or explanation ward sees something he's not supposed to see which will feed into um feed into the ending ward sees a a vision of an alien realm uh some sort of tentacle planet uh this is where this is one of the many points where the movie goes like uh it takes its normal cosmic horror and then jacks it up to like true cosmic horror right um so um ward uh runs away from nicholas cage hides in essentially the basement as like a tornado shelter basically and um uh because of that not because he you know said a special incantation or anything uh ward uh survives as the color um evacuates the planet it takes whatever resources it needs uh it, 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 it it spirals up into a sort of tentacle of energy towards the cosmos and uh disappears uh we're not totally sure if it leaves anything behind in the book they sort of implied that something was left behind um but what it does leave behind is a colorless white ashy sort of uh I, I hate to use this, but like a, a post-nuclear bomb sort of of, of uh, vision and ward covered in ash is... It- do you guys remember Duck Amuck? I do no. not. What's that? The Looney Tunes short where... Um, oh, are you going to go yeah. with this tongue? Yeah, eventually. Like you find a Bugs Bunny's drawing him, but he exists on a blank page and they keep drawing scenery around him. It reminds me most of Daffy Duck existing in a in a blank canvas. There is definitely some sort of Looney Tunes go on a vacation type thing. And at one point, Daffy Duck talks about how dry his tongue is and he sticks out his tongue. And it honestly does. That's, a, that's actually not Daffy. That's uh, Who is it? you're thinking of Tiny Tunes. Thank you. No, please help me. My summer vacation. Yes. Yeah. But it is. He sticks out his tongue, and I'm like, I thought that's what you're referencing. And I was like, which also kind of applies here. Like, I remember he just sticks it out, and it's so dry and cracked. Nuclear fallout, I do think, is accurate. Even though you said you were trying to avoid it, it 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 looks like a 
Akira style. Well, at first you still think you're in just bright light. Like it's so well done that when um, Ward emerges from the basement, um, it actually still looks like you're again watching like some shit from Duckamuck or the Unfinished Swan. Yeah, yeah, I, I I do like that sort of alternative picture is because it's sort of an unreality, right? Like all. Uh, this thing corrupted a reality, and then when it was time to fucking bail, um, the thing sucked reality from reality, right? Like, yeah. it took, it didn't just take back the crazy color, it took all color. Um, yeah. It didn't just take back, uh, you know, uh, the strange new life forms, it took back all life forms. And, and, the reason it, and the reason it can afford to take that sort of privilege is that the color won. There's nothing that war did to defeat the color the color accomplished whatever strange alien unknowable goal that it intended to do and then it bounced eat potheads and sheriffs that i think is the thematic ending and it's going to sound like i just smoked too much weed i'm a benny but i think what it's supposed to imply is that like so right color itself is intangible Right. Like it is it is something that we understand and and realize, but it's like you can't really hold color without holding another substance that embodies the color. At the end of the movie, also, when they when when um, the family is all present watching TV, I don't want to say soul like it's uh, like it's some sort of like religious thing, but like all the family's dead. We saw them all die, but the family still exists. So you're left with the idea that what's left is something intangible that made them them themselves. So what ultimately what the color sucks up isn't um, like the house still exists. The building still exists. Like any damages from the lightning, what it takes is uh, the intangibility of the space as opposed to everything tangible that most destruction would normally cause. So it takes their souls, their essence, like the color, and it sucks all that out of a place. And even though theoretically none of that stuff truly exists, in a vacuum when it doesn't exist, it seems weirder than any alien planet. Yeah, I feel like that's a that's a good interpretation. Like it is it but it, regardless like the it's it's taking something with it, right? Like yeah. it it won. Like it it, it, it it whatever the fuck its goal was, like check mark. Um and not George Bush mission accomplished, like uh, you don't know that, Peter. Maybe it had to fucking bail. You don't know what the mission accomplished. Maybe you think it was like the color whoa. like went back to its own planet. Words on like, us. They're so. like, we're doing great, and someone threw a shoe at the color. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he went back and he's like, look at all the stuff I got, and they're like, that's not what you were supposed to do. What? Fuck you, magenta. Oh, I'm not a color. I'm a color out of space. Color out of space. Uh, well, when he goes uh, home, it's just the color. Right, but it creates an image uh, that the original book, uh, des- the original story, describes as the blasted heath, um, which is uh, my know, favorite Dark Souls level. <laughs> <laughs> it is extremely Dark Souls or, or Bloodborne, right? Like it's it's a fucking killer turn of phrase. Um, unfortunately, uh, Lovecraft lifted it from um, Shakespeare. So, um, but it's a it's a great turn of phrase. Oh, but that's awful. sort of the the like two unreadable authors. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just yeah, I, I, I'm uh, choosing. Fuck to... you! Don't laugh. When's the last time you've said something like you know? I want to read Merchant of Venice today. Uh, oh, I thought that was laugh? funny. I just didn't audibly. I agree. I've never cracked open a, a Billy Shakespeare and been like, I just want to sit down. 
and see what Shylock's up to this chapter. <laughs> this is derailing us, but I just want to say I think that old writing is bad and you shouldn't read it. Uh, <laughs> and, and I agree yeah, with that. I was not trying to. I, honestly, I like think about it. I, I agree. So the force, the color is not so much as like evil as it's like a corrupting or changing force. And that's like a key part of, of yeah, yeah, cosmic horror. It affects the concept of reality, which this movie um, and the story itself, I think, takes it further than the concept of reality that we talk about. Right. Like atoms and shit like that. It's the underlying things that like don't actually matter to the um uh, physical makeup of the uh, of it it's the way that humans perceive it like so that's why color is such a great great use of this i think in the story right because like color actually like is fucking meaningless like you mentioned peter pigeons pigeons don't see color like there's no common reference point as a species let alone like as a as a as a existence on this planet of color it like has no bearing on science in any capacity it's more just what a it's what our eyes are made out of right like yeah. and so the idea of infecting reality down to the color is really about like just infecting reality in a way that is like this is where it gets to that and not in a uh, not as a parody in that Lovecraft idea of the indescribable. Like, how can you combat something that infects something down to the intangibility of reality? I do like that it, it seems beyond like good and evil or necessarily motivations. Even when you were saying like it, it accomplished, if it was trying to accomplish something, it did it, it won all that stuff. I agree with that. But, but you look at other even horror monster, whatever you look at the thing like that, that is a thing that's trying to survive that is doing that kind of stuff. You're like, in this case, it just felt like a otherworldly force that was crushing and non-stopping and all of these different things. But that's why color works so perfectly. Cause like you said, it's, yeah, I mean, color can be used in great ways, all that stuff, but as a base thing, it's pretty neutral. Like it's, it's not a thing you can't, it's not tangible, all these things. So it's, it's perfect where it keeps it kind of out of your grasp of, being able to categorize it as evil, this, that, whatever you're like, it's a. Well, uh, and also we're thing. saying we're saying that it won in the fact that it won in relation to our perception of reality. Yes. like that family was fucking wiped out. But as far as you know, it sucked everything out as like an allergic reaction to the sure. existence that it infected. It was supposed like, to engulf the entire the, world. Maybe yeah, it wasn't exactly like 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 it's beyond that. It came on a meteor. It it existed in a dimension or a space or whatever that just is so alien to ours that it it infected the very fabric of our own perception of reality and then uh, eventually left. Yeah, and, and more of my point with the term one was... It was not stopped. We're not trying to indict you. Is that we had absolutely no effect on its... Um, yeah. On its plans. Its plans, uh, you know, it landed, uh, it engaged with us, it tangled with us for a period of time, and then it bounced. And maybe its goal is, uh, you know, sort of like uh, the H.P. Lovecraft Society podcast, and, uh, you know, their, their concept was maybe this thing is sort of leapfrogging from planet to planet, like... It basically lands until it can form enough energy again and gather up enough energy that it can point at a new planet and then fire off uh, a meteor um, towards towards there and sort of leapfrog. And like maybe that's its entire goal 
is to, you know, uh, touch down on other planets for some unknown reason and then just keep on, keep on keeping on. Ne- not necessarily total conquering <laughs> of the planet, but just like, you know, just like a, a midnight rider. I like the idea of the colors mentality. I mean, I'm just going to keep on keeping on, man. Yeah. Then, whoa. You guys whoa, aren't, you guys, are, you guys aren't chill whoa. or groovy at all. I'm going to keep on keeping on. You know what? I got to say, like... I'm not feeling the vibe of this planet anymore. Yeah, what if the color had a like a a global domination kind of attitude, and then it absorbed Tommy Chong, and then it was like, I'm just gonna keep on keeping <laughs> on, man. But I actually think the Lovecraftian <laughs> horrors that it combines speaks to its. Um... And then the color was like, "There's got to be something better than Ezra." Yes, God. <laughs> I mean. Uh, Thank you, again. Ryan, uh, but you I, but I, for that. but I do, but I do de- name eight. Better than Ezra song. <laughs> I can't. Um, uh, well, that's good. I could take stabs. Uh-oh. I'm sure there's one that's like broke, broken. Or I'm, yeah. I have no idea, but I'm, I, I could take some blind stabs. Really? You don't know good? Like, it was good. <laughs> that song? That's better. I, anyways, it's featured in the background of Dirty Work at the Bar before they play uh, Rolling Stone Street Fighting Man. Gee. Seven. Anyways, uh, that was. I've seen dirty work. Him, correct amount of silence. Maybe like I a saw. dozen times. We we didn't get to it. Let's talk about Nicolas Cage. What he does in this movie. So early, very early in the movie, he does an impression of his dad. Which, you know, my dad would say to me, <laughs> but it sounds like uh, Trump. It, kind it, of. It I see, I read that after the movie. I did not get that after. I did not get that while I was watching the movie. I got it I a did. bit the first. I, I, I got it the first time, and then me and Peter talked about it, and he said, "Oh, it's actually his dad." That kind of stuff, and then I, with my tiny little pea brain, immediately erased all that stuff, and on second viewing, completely forgot and did not pick up on any kind of Trumpism or anything, and then it all came crashing back when we started talking about it. I was like, oh, yeah, wait, I did remember that the first time, but... Yeah, I didn't know. I, I honestly thought he was doing val- a valley girl that was supposed to be his dad, and then afterwards it's like, oh, who who wants to hear Nicolas Cage's Trump impression? I'm like, I guess I can kind of see it, but uh, like... It, it's not even just his the Nathan's dad. It's Nicolas Cage's dad. Nick, Nick, yeah. He's doing an impression of, of Nicolas Cage's own father. Yeah, um, I, I, but I'm saying he's bad at it. I'm saying that he's doing an impression of a a animated nasally New York guy who happens to have a voice that sounds kind of like Trump, and that like Nicholas Cage girl. can do. If if Nicholas Cage like is not totally like politically aware that that voice sounds like Trump, like I think he gets a pass because he's Nicholas Cage and has given us so many fruits. I so agree. And it's not actively distracting. I mean, obviously, it's still Nicolas Cage. I, I know what you're saying, Aaron, but, like, it's not a true, oh, my God, this could be a Trump impression or anything like that enough of where I think it's a distraction. Because, like I said, the fir- upon first watch, I kind of felt like there were some hints. And then second watch, I did not pick up on it at all. So I feel like it's it kind of disappears into his weird character that is going on. And I like the contrast that Nicolas Cage does not have that voice. He has a more like husky kind of like the Nicolas Cage kind of voice. And then it goes like way more nasally, way more high pitched, um, not high pitched, but way more nasally in a way like higher octave. 
Um, and I, and I kind of appreciate that Nicolas Cage is like conjuring something personal um, because Richard Stanley is conjuring something personal. And Nicolas Cage also is like he he hunted out a Lovecraft project for years that he thought he could attach himself to because he his similar to Richard Stanley, like his father um, shared Lovecraft with him. And then he was like, oh, because Nicolas Cage is like a comic book dork, too. So his dad was like, oh, well. You like comic books? Let me share with some of the uh, you know this 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 uh, author that I really like that that kind of thing. Um, while you're into weird stuff, here's weirder stuff. Um, and so like I, I kind of let it go. Ah, uh, Nicholas Cage, father of Cal L. Cage, is a comic book fan. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen pictures of Nicholas Cage with his son? Who looks like a metalocalypse character? I have seen pictures of him with his son that look is like a huge metal dude. It just makes yeah, me happy, honestly. I'm just like, yeah, cool. Yeah, it fucking rules. Um, but yeah, I love, uh, I love the idea of Nicolas Cage. Like, uh, the, the original story, the Gardner family. Um, they've been on that land for you know generations, for eons. Um, for eons. For for the eons. <laughs> Hold on, in Maine. For eons. Um, you don't want to go you don't want to go down that well (laughs) you don't want to go down that racial history um Um, i do like as long as we're talking about where it's located i love the little weather report that's like um mentions like innsmouth and other lovecraft towns yeah and arkham yeah it's it's awesome oh yeah and obviously the, the, the award has a miscatonic sweatshirt which um like i it like it's which, which if Peter, if we're ever together again, I have one, you have one. Yeah, we can be like a weird nerd thundercat. I've just, I've explained what my sweatshirt is to my wife two to three times over the last year, and I'm getting the sense she doesn't care. I thought the Miskatonic thing was too obvious of a reference, and no, then, it's not at and all. And then I saw a Vox explainer uh, explaining all the references in Lovecraft Country. I also like have explained my t- my my sweatshirt to multiple people, and they're like, "What's Miskatonic? Is that where you went to school?" And I'm like, "It's a fake college." <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah, I went go to there. school. Why I shove this tentacle up your ass? You get. <laughs> and then they think I'm talking about fish play and it's just not they ask about tuition <laughs> oh so you lied about your diploma you went to a fake college <laughs> no they're like oh what, what did what SAT score do you need to get in there god cool. damn it oh so for a technical fun. ass play and you get a fucking degree I get it <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so uh, I, I love my Miskatonic sweatshirt because uh, while for a little bit I was like, is this like an obvious reference? And then like uh, literally no one on earth except for like you two has caught it. Um, have we ever done a, a, a powerhouse Nicolas Cage movie? Because we haven't done Mandy. Like, Have we done, have we done a Nicolas Cage movie? I don't think so. We've never done like, like there's a few that I would love to do. Like I would love to do The Rock because that movie I'd, is. I'd love to do Face Off. I'd love to do Vampire's Kiss. Yeah. I would, I would do, do Con Mandy, Air. Obviously. I would do The Rock. I would do Mandy. I would do. There are. There's, I would say if you guys do a Nicolas Cage month, let me know is all I'm saying. Yeah. Hold on. Have you seen the clip? I forget if I sent this to you. Nicolas Cage is also a little bit of like a, 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 a stylistic succubus. Um apologize for the terminology that sometimes been misogynist but the alliteration is too good to pass out oh, yeah he i saw an interview with him promoting i forget what movie it was that just came out in september and he is dressed exactly like richard stanley now 
Like, Richard Stanley has no involvement in this movie. He's wearing the cowboy hat. He has long hair. He's He looks like Richard Stanley. Have I sent this to you guys? No. But I think that that's already Yeah, the 30-second of... clip where he's, like, talking about being over the top. I feel like that's already yeah, kind but, of Yeah, but he looks like Richard Stanley. Yeah, but I think that I don't. That might be a kindred spirit thing. Yeah, because, I, uh, I don't know. Richard Nicholas Stanley Cage has a very specific style. The- Nicholas Cage used to talk about when Richard Stanley was like an absolute like no name kind of like completely disappeared person. Um, I feel like Nick Cage has been wearing cowboy hats and being a goober for a long time. So I feel like no, if you see this, you will laugh. But the but Nicholas but like Nicholas Cage talked about being like a witch doctor <laughs> on the set of go, a, a Ghost Rider, right? Like Nicholas Cage is like he's oh I'm I'm sure he's found a kindred spirit and now he's trying to absorb it. Yes, no, yeah, I do no, agree. That's, yeah. that's fine. Sorry, now I'm just laughing because I literally googled Nicholas Cage cowboy head and this is I I might have found my podcast. I think I'm just going to literally talk to people about <laughs> <laughs> pictures of there are. So many good pictures of him in cowboy hats. If the whole podcast was Holy shit. Skype chatting uh, pictures of Nicolas Cage wearing cowboy hats to people and then having them react, mm. uh, I feel like it'd be a solid podcast, right? I mean, it wouldn't be a bad. It wouldn't be worse oh. than some other ones. This is just this would be a true rabbit hole if I wasn't on a podcast right now. I'd be I'd be done. This would be a couple hours. Okay, just just hold on. No, I'm sending my phone's getting down. Chat. Don't worry, I'm putting my phone down. No, pick your phone back up because I'm sending this to our chat. And don't tell me that he is not absorbing some sort of Nicholas K or some sort of Richard Stanley energy. Like, look at the, the preview picture that popped up. He's even wearing it like the same eye level that Richard Stanley wears. Richard his. Stanley would have a, a few more feathers, I think. And there's no bolo. Look, look. But when you watch the clip, he's got long hair. No, that's leather jacket. Come on. Something happened. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 not okay. I maybe Nicolas Cage is a little bit of a uh, annihilation style uh, alien force, and he's just. I think it's more when you just start talking like a friend. He's just <laughs> like picking, I think that's what it is. Like oh, I like that hat. Up, they all wear that. He picked up a little bit of the DNA of Richard Stanley uh, upon absorbing him. He picked up a little bit of DNA from Michael Bay. He picked up a little bit of DNA from uh, from fucking. Uh, yeah. Um, John Woo, like he's yeah. Just, when I will when, say when you're Nicolas not- Cage gets sucked back to his home galaxy, all of a sudden Richard Stanley's gonna be like, "My hat." You're probably not wrong. Where he probably came, he came to set and he's like, "That's cool. I like your hat." Or whatever. Richard Stanley's like, "Oh yeah, cool." And then the next day, he showed up in almost an identical hat. Wherever he's like, "Motherfucker!" Like I just, like, I thought you were just complimenting and I, me. And that's I mean, your yeah, thing. It's fair. Like Peter and I talk differently than we used to, and I think it's because like we talk so much that our words end up melting. I would... Like, it's yeah. fine. It happens. Yeah. I mean, I haven't noticed that specifically, but I would think that definitely, if you guys have talked so much that I'm sure you guys yeah, have... Yeah, I talk about hikes so much, and he talks about eating nutty bars. Yes. Nutty bars. But yes. You're kind of touching on is Nicholas Cage is this, like, inconquerable shifting force, yeah. because, like, while... Andy Samberg's impression of him is very funny. <laughs> Andy Samberg's impression of him is roughly conquering <laughs> a five-year period of Nicolas Cage. Yeah. He's no, not he's... that actor anymore, and he hasn't been that actor for 10 or 15 years, yeah. right? But like, it's actually, like, a thing that I think is fine. Like, the thing about Nicolas Cage, and I actually love that clip, um, which maybe we should include in the show notes because we've talked about clip. Enough. Great clip. But it's because he's like, what do you mean overacting? Like, that's how I react to stuff, and it's, it's so... 
It's so good. Like the thing about the Andy Samberg thing that is a good thing to call out is that when you saw that uh, I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence, you knew two things. One, Nicolas Cage would be on the show in an instant to appear by him, which he eventually did. And as part of that, uh, B, <laughs> he would have found it as funny as anyone else. Like Nicolas Cage seems like. If we're going to give, like, you know, A-plus, super sweetie status to Elijah Wood, he seems like, for someone who has had the career and the fate that he has, he's at least a honorary sweetie. I would, yeah, I agree, only in the sense, like, he definitely has had some crazy ups and downs in both terms of, like you guys said, his acting is, it changes throughout the years, all that kind of stuff. Like Andy Samberg did to Mark Wahlberg and word on the street was Mark Wahlberg was upset about that. That kind of stuff oh, where I so could upset. see Nicolas Cage like show people the – like he would pull up the video and be like, you got to see this. You got to see this. Wait. what Didn't Nicolas Cage go on SNL? No, he did. Seven? Yeah, he appeared. That's he what I'm saying. I'm saying Nicolas by. Cage yes. was cool with it compared Mark to – Mark Wahlberg did it as a saving face thing because everyone was like Mark Wahlberg's piss. Yes. And his publicist was like, hey, it's kind of a bad look that he did this little silly thing he, and you're like, that guy fucking sucks. The whole shit was, say hi to your mother for me and you got mad. So now you have to come on to make it look like yeah, you're you not Yeah, you have to mad. come and at least, at least pretend you're a human being that understands that jokes are okay. Yes. And that like, you're a public oh, oh, figure. Oh, I'm so sorry. Did uh, did SNL make you feel bad, Mr. Man, who got paid fifty million dollars yeah. to be in a six week shoot? Like, <laughs> did SNL it, make you feel a, bad? It's by not a surprise that he was on the same show as Sarah Palin, be- which he was. Which is the same thing. Like Sarah Palin went on there, who could not take a joke. Yeah. To show that, well, it just is bad for your image if you if you think this sucks. Um, yeah. And they were both. They were both. In the same aspect, but like Nicolas Cage, I actually don't think is an over actor. I think he is someone who commits. Like everyone jokes about Nicolas Cage being in shitty movies, but I think Nicolas Cage a loves to be in movies, and b I think that he commits to every role. And so, like when you watch Vampires Kiss or Face Off, and he's at his one hundred percent intensity, it makes sense because the direction or the script or everything else matches that level of intensity, and when you see him in bad movies doing the same thing, you're recognizing that it's not Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage stands out because he's the loudest, most visible person in that moment. But it's because everything else around him is incompetent and he's still doing the same thing of trying to, in this case, not rise to the material as he does in his best work, but try to make the material rise to him. Yeah, like, in the same time that everyone's like, Ghost Rider, ha ha, he's making fucking Matchstick Man an adaptation. So, like, yeah. the dude knew how, to, always knew how to act. And he did Lord of War and The Weatherman as well, which are more, like, low-key performances. Or Lord like, of War or something like that. Yeah. Like Lord of like, War, Weatherman. It's not his fault that Bangkok Dangerous is bad. It's, he's the only reason it's watchable. And then you have also other ones where it's, like, Portico, New Orleans, and there are plenty of Great. other in between where he's, like... Yeah. Pretty wacky and walking the line, but like works for the character. The material too. matches yeah. it, yeah. And he and I, I think the argument here is that uh, Nicholas Cage needs the director to perfectly dial him in. And yep. like in Mandy, when uh, when Nicholas Cage needs to play scenes small and intimately, you, you yeah. just see him as this sort of very tragic, sort of weird 
Uh, he's a quiet sad boy like, for most a, of that a man movie. pushed to the periphery of society yeah. like a, a very sad man who just like lost the one thing he was fucking living for and then when he sort of cranks up the nicholas cage-ness the dial starts to get turned up um cosmatos basically is like all right this is how much I want you to give me in this scene. This is how much you want to give me in this scene. I don't think Richard Stanley is necessarily the man to uh, 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 leash Nicolas Cage. No, uh, but I think that I think that he found material that Nicolas Cage was allowed to be unleashed in, and more or less makes sense. There's scenes before. I think that I think that Nicolas Cage should have played scenes smaller before the. Um, yeah before the the chaos happens like because there's little moments that are beautiful like the moment with him and Jolie Richardson uh, on yeah. the balcony and they're sure. standing we even talked about the cinematography in this movie it's fucking gorgeous like this is a gorgeous looking movie and there's this shot of like this low sort of violet hued scene against the fog and him and Jolie Richardson yeah. are looking out on their farm and they're sort of thinking about the possibilities of the future and she's just trusting him She's saying, this was your fucking dream. Like, let's I trust him. And then he's, he's flirting with her and they're flirting back. And it's so human. It's and so like, good. Yeah. You don't see Nicolas Cage in that mold very much. Like, I wish that the whole first act of the movie was him in that mode. Or the scene where he's reacting to him being on the news acting crazy. <laughs> that, uh, that scene's great, by the That way. scene is like, great because it's Nicolas Cage acting like Nicolas Cage. It's acting like a normal human being being like, Oh, I thought I was like doing a good job, but now I'm looking at the video. Why didn't anyone tell me I should have combed my hair? Yeah, yeah. Which is it's a clearly it's a, a joke, scene. but like that's also another one of those throwaway lines that I just I absolutely love that became a background noise in the best way was when he's doing that and he's like, I didn't say UFO, you said UFO. I didn't say that. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then it cuts to the kitchen and uh the youngest Jack, you can literally hear him saying just like his dad to like mimic him. He's like, I didn't say UFO. You said like, and you can like hear it. I know, yeah, yeah. And all the stuff with the little kid and, is so, and it's great because that so is that feels man. so authentic. Though, it's like the dad's just talking on TV, and the kid is just like eating it up because this dad's just pouring out energy. And so he's like, he's like, oh, 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 oh. I'm like, dad, okay, cool. But I, I mean, I, I thought so that I agree. I think that he kind of starts letting a little Nicholas Cagey creep out. Just a little too. So early. actually, I think the biggest miscalculation on that, to to hear your point, sure. now that I'm thinking about it and like and we're talking about it, there's the part where he comes back from the drive from the hospital where he all when they the llamas are out of the barn and and I think the intention was for him to let slip a little bit the the Lavinia I'm up to here with you like suddenly and stuff like that. And it's like oh this will this will this will come back later in a bigger way, but. Nicholas Cage doesn't play it as an escalation. He, um, which would have, I don't know if Nicholas Cage is capable, and I don't mean that as an insult to his acting ability, but like, he's not good at like a slow ramp. He's good at bursts of intensity. Yeah. So he did it out of nowhere, and it went on too long, and it was like, where the fuck is this coming from? And it, and so that later on, when it shows up in the film, when the intensity actually matches, like you wouldn't necessarily like that. That tone wouldn't stand out as much. I think you're like, what is this again? Um, and I, th I think if he wouldn't have done it in that moment and just been angry, I actually think maybe the rest of it works better. I think the biggest miscalculation is having it at a point that intense and that out of nowhere and that Valley Girl-ish where he's like swearing and doing hand motions all of a sudden and then going back 
to normal that it doesn't work as a slow escalation. I wasn't trying to. I, I was. I wasn't sure if they were trying to go for. He's a he's a completely normal dude. Now this stuff happens. Everybody's acting weird. Or if they're trying to be like, I think he's they, a cool I think dude. They are. I think he's a little bit of an eccentric person who like is a Nicholas Cage type. So that's what I wasn't. I wasn't. I I, feel, I mean I think they're trying to go for normal. This thing lands. People start getting weird. But the other thing would be he's kind of eccentric. He's kind of a Nicholas Cage type. So that when these things start getting weird, him having a strange outburst doesn't necessarily raise all of the red flags. Like if your dad's just like never raised his voice to you and is sitting in in the corner reading a book and is like, okay, whatever. And then all of a sudden he goes all Valley Girl and tells you not to exist. Then all of a sudden you're like, oh, fuck. But like instead they're just like, dad's acting kind of weird. And like I'm watching the movie. I'm like, yeah, dad's acting real fucking weird. What are you talking about? They they are kind of like shitty nineties parents. Though. That is true. Like, yeah, again, not not to call back to that. Like the oh, whole totally like, interested in like slut shames her daughter. Yeah, she's like, well, yeah. yeah. What kind of message is is he referring to Ward? Yeah, is he going to get when you dress like that? Just like and that. Then, like in jean shorts. But the humanizing part is she immediately goes like, oh shit, I sound like my mother, and then goes and chases her down. But then when she chases her down, she entirely fails to fix it. And, she's not yeah. like, you can dress however you want. You're beautiful. Like you can, if it gets like like. That's that's his fault if he can't figure out how to like. There's there's like none of that. It's just like uh, she goes through him and she's like, yeah, but you know, I didn't explain my slut shaming well. Here, let me stretch out my. But I do like that scene too because what what I picked up from that was just like the mom is clearly trying to make it right and talking through the door, thinking like her daughter's just laying on bed, like taking it all in but not responding but instead she's got her headphones in and she's just crying and just like furious and you're like none of this is going through like in in the mom's head yeah. she's like okay i'm making some amends i'm patching, yeah, this, I'm patching this up this is what i'm doing in the i'm moment. patching up yeah. some of these holes right now before any of them are going to be wherever and like the daughter is just cratering them in harder into her head where you're just like oh none of this is actually working yeah yeah but that also fits to the whole like that feels very much like a gen x parent thing yeah where, i agree that does too. as opposed to like uh like a 2019 parent. i 100% agree i don't know anybody who's like and then i went in my room and put my headphones on and i was like fuck you mom but also you. just a parent just a parent thing of like being like um oh you know those legs like might be showing too much yeah it's like this just doesn't like i have i have friends my age with like kids in there and i don't know it's just not a, like we grew up in a different thing For sure. it's very much like richard stanley's parents would have said that to his hypothetical yes sister. it's not a topic of conversation not. as much anymore yeah. especially for but i did like that she wasn't uh not about showing legs if anything it's like you know should you be uh posting the wop dance on tiktok yes exactly but but i, <laughs> I do also like that the daughter wasn't she's not like some dumb sexy figure you know what i mean like, no. it's like she's like she is dressing sexy and what do you expect it's like what but but that, again that that does line up with like a back in the day type mom comment where they'd be like well what do you expect with dressing like that and you're like dressing what do you mean dressing like that she looks like she's a normal person <laughs> she's like, just full, she's wearing shorts she's a fully clothed human being <laughs> yeah. like i can see her yeah. knees that's what's supposed to be Look, like looks like a hot her. summer yeah. day she lives in the country exactly like put your sweats on here's a hoodie Go out into the 95 degree sun. Yeah, and it is one of those things where, like, um, it, it creates a, fa a bit of family friction, but it also creates, like, empathy, where you're like, I, I feel empathy for Lavinia, who, like, yeah. 
has very few few uh, peers around, um, and I also feel uh, empathy for Teresa, who is clearly like struggling to not just like uh, identify with her own daughter's sexuality and like sort of approach it in a in a thoughtful manner. Like Nicholas Cage is full on productive dad mode in the few glimpses glimpses we get. Like he's like who, he basically is like who the fuck are you to ward? Because there's like yeah. a handsome young man around his daughter. Um, and um, but like Teresa is having her own sex guilt issues because she had a double mastectomy yeah. and is trying to like rediscover like what it means to be a sexual person after you have had mm-hmm. a double mastectomy. Like it's that's something that like no one can understand unless you've you've had that happen. Like I can't understand that I never will. Like that's that's fucking like that's that's hard. Yeah. Um and like she uh she's trying to you know reconnect with her sexuality after nicholas cage literally quotes six months like they haven't had sex in six months um and uh like that's 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 a whole like family dynamic and my point my ultimate point to all this is these sort of like little like un un um, unresolved threads mm-hmm. make the tragedy of what happens to the family similar to the book just like the book um, an actual tragedy. This this family did nothing to deserve this. This family wasn't uh, engaging in uh, occult meddling. <laughs> like, all the daughter was asking for is like, hey, I don't want my mom to have cancer anymore. The da- daughter wasn't like, I wish to conjure the dark spirits of the universe to give me unlimited power. Like, this is not, this is not a Lovecraftian scientist who, you know, uh, broke into the unknown and then was yeah. punished for it. This is just a, a family that got fucked and that is why like this story has i love this story it's sort of a job kind of story the gardeners did nothing wrong they're just sort of trapped between elements that are way the fuck bigger than them the town trying to build a dam on their land uh cosmic horror gods above them uh cancer that is ultimately un- uh, incurable unless you make grave sacrifices her like uh you know anatomical sacrifices like that that's all stuff that's just like jobian pain that that like this family has to go through for seemingly no reason yeah uh and you know that is such a good like summary of it because like yeah no one's a villain no which i really love like I think villains in movies in general are played out. <laughs> there's there's enough uh, there's enough horror in the in existence to not always have a sniveling villain, and I say that somewhat jokingly, but also uh, Peter and I have talked about recently, like how many like '90s comedies were like, you know, what we need a villain, yeah. Absolutely, like, it, it's uh, who introduces who introduces a plot for some just reason as opposed to into there. Yeah, it's just it's such part and parcel for things. And I think one of the ways that Lovecraft was always really good is that like his villains for the most part were never villains. Like is Cthulhu a villain or is he just something outside of the idea of good of good or evil that um causes actions to humans that you could say is are not desirable that you wouldn't want to achieve on your own like just like godzilla burning alive and yeah exactly like it is a force of nature is a hurricane evil is a wildfire evil is a volcano evil is is a color out of space evil like it's not it's not about choosing the good or the bad and that's kind of where um in Nicholas Cage's daughter in this movie kind of like she is still trying to use something that um 
is meant to control the uncontrollable in her in her Wiccan uh, or witchy rituals. At the end of the day, um, it doesn't matter one way or the other. Like you could say, carving words into her neck is horrific, but it ultimately it doesn't matter because the forces that you're dealing with are so beyond the idea of some sort of like blood ritual as a way to to stop it. And I and I and you know one other thing I want to mention before we you know speed towards <laughs> speed is a very funny way to say it, but before we get to final thoughts is like. I talked a lot about the way I love that this this movie infects the intangible parts of our reality. And and as I was looking at my notes, I, I and we were talking about the Nicolas Cage scene where he sees the weather report about all the different uh, Lovecraftian towns. Like, it also infects the static. Like, it infects the TV so it shows symbols and static and images. And those are those are also intangible. Like, the, the radio waves – or sorry, the TV and the electricity and the satellite things, those part are intangible. But the fact that it's creating an image of static as opposed to an image of, 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 of some sort of, like, reality or concreteness, um, that's an intangible thing too. The radio waves themselves probably – I keep saying radio waves – the, space the TV waves, the space, the television waves, Spaces probably waves. exist the same, but they get mangled in the way that we're viewing them. In the same way, the color of objects gets mangled in the way that we're viewing them, and that's such a like a. It's so perfect the way they the that Richard Stanley figured out a way to make it infect all the things that don't. Um, don't have concrete substance. Well, still, I mean, branching into substance, you mentioned the shower scene and what happens to his arm with the weird, like, gel cap that just swats at him. But I even love that those, like, kind of, like, creepy alien thingy stuff are, are minimal, right? Like, the gel thing is very tangible. It has an effect. Um, the image when Ward is running and the sheriff gets – it disappears and you – is is I almost think you don't you did not need to cut to the tree because just the fact that he's gone suddenly and we see him lifted out of frame is scary enough. I agree with that. Um, I I didn't remember them cutting to it. And then it was just like there's that split second before it does where it's like oh that's kind of cool. I like that it's just like he's gone. We're all on board with what's happening. Blah blah. And then there's like the one yeah. shot of him in the tree. You're like I guess that works too. The trees are spooky. Like he's he's not safe just because yeah. he's got a flashlight. But I I would have liked him just getting. <laughs> Out of the out of the screen, be like, oh fuck, yeah. yeah and obviously, all, all the the weird hybrid Cronenberg creatures are are good and creepy. The scene where Nicolas Cage has to do the llama mask, but that also speaks, I think, to the non evilness too. Like its interaction with our reality. Like it's not like it probably was like, oh, all right, I'm gonna combine all this shit. It's just a question of like everything sucked into it like a little black hole, like time, like Benny says, right? So when they see all the creatures, they're like, yeah, it looks like birds are sucked in. It just is – it's coalescing around um, intangibility. So – Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Like, And, and I like the fact that the scene in the, the of killing the alpaca is essentially like an execution. It's not a battle. Whereas like um, – in The Thing, you feel like in John Carpenter's The Thing, which has the scene with the dog kennel, um, yeah. which is clearly what they're they're riffing on, right? That's clearly what Stanley's riffing on. So, did the mother say to uh, Lavinia specifically, like, oh, because something about your legs with Ward in reference? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, he yeah. says, like, 
what we, I think I think her quote is something along the lines of what kind of message do you think you're sending with showing your So life? I did not piece that to fully together that full it does a good full roundabout. It's hard to catch everything with so many major things going on because yeah. uh so you have Nicolas Cage uh, or sorry you have Nathan and Teresa talking and she essentially is saying like you know I don't feel beautiful after having my breast removed all that kind of stuff and I think she literally just says like you're a boob guy and he goes well now I'm a leg man or something like that. No, he says, he says, you know, I've always been. A there you go. Man. But like, but like then it, it directs it. I never, I didn't make that connection. So there's that. And then there's one instance between Lavinia and Ward that I liked separately. He is looking down at her boots or her shoes or something. And then there's one shot to see, to see the symbols that were written. Yes. And she, yeah. And I love that there's then, the one shot else, of her shoes yeah. to see like, that's what he's looking at. And she says, were you looking at my legs? And he goes, no, what? And he's like, oh, hey, come follow me. And then after that is when her mom says something about her legs to her. But I think that it's interesting that. Well, that, also like, there's a little bit of that, like a uh, projection of sexualization yes. of like her legs were just sexualized by her. That's what I mean. Is, is, like, again, I, didn't, I didn't fully go around about that where it's like then yeah. all of a sudden it's grounded in. I don't feel like a sexual person, but I'm still a sexual person to my husband because of my legs. And then all of a sudden, she's and now saying, all of a sudden, this look person's at, look at my daughter's legs are just out. Day in short. Yes. Yeah. It'd be like if somebody's like, well, I'm a boob guy. And then the next day it's like boobs just out. You're like, wait, hold on. Oh, that's that's sexual. Like, all, I didn't necessarily fully connect the dots beat to beat of being like, oh, you still like me because my legs. And then all of a sudden it was like, your legs are out, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, yeah, that it really does do a good job of just like taken those dots in a story that doesn't necessarily need any of that kind of connection like well yeah and we didn't even really talk about like her cutting off her fingers and stuff like that like yeah there there is a sense in this movie um that um that their their mom understandably has like removed herself from being a mom yes right like i am i am part of this family i am loved but the, but the role of being a parent, like, I've had to seed. And that's fine because two of my kids are high school to college age and one of them is, like, 10 or 11. Like, but um, there's there's those kind of moments of her stepping back into being a parent um, because she's feeling kind of up to it. Like, when she comes down to kind of potentially make dinner instead of dad who's been making it for a long time yeah. and stuff like that and it's like no one likes dad's cooking but they're not sure how to reintegrate that um yeah you've got the line integrate like her into that into that role and i think there is a little aspect of that in the way that uh, uh she reacts to her mom's comment where it's like it is out of nowhere it is slut shaming it does feel very much like uh again in tandem to the fact that she's like is on red alert for the sexualization of legs after her own yes. legs were sexualized. But also just like, is this what a parent does? I'm I'm trying to dip my toe back into Yeah, it. that's true. She's like, and I feel like I should connect with you somehow, but instead I should probably say it came something. down as hard. Because clearly I know Nathan's a little bit annoyed by it. Yes. But Nathan's annoyed by it by a by a parent that's like been engaged. Like, I know I can't just call this mm-hmm. out. So I'm going to um um to get the to end the situation that's making me he's a dad that realizes he's like i'm not you're you're looking at my daughter and you guys have a connection but if i say don't see that boy that's obviously not gonna end well so if they don't see that boy Mm -hmm. or yeah so it's just like uh, say anything uh, to her it's mm. gonna it's gonna have bigger ripple effects so so he just looks him up now and goes all right he's like "Mm, mm." 
He's like, you go do this. I'm going to go do this. Like, it's that thing of like, I'm going to end my personal uncomfortability. Yeah. But because but because Jolie Richardson's been out of the game as a parent, she's just like, rough around the edges. Um, she's rough around the edges and is just saying she she's she's being explicit with what Nathan's being implicit. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I Yeah, I couldn't say it better than that. She's she's. It is very easy, like, um, you know, when I used to go on business trips before the global pandemic, I'd be gone for two or three days, and all of a sudden you step back into, like, um, a rhythm that was all of a sudden established without you for a couple of days. In the household? And then you'll just be like, in the household, yeah. yeah. And then you'll be just like, you'll come back, and maybe you come back, like, mid-dinner, and you'll be like, oh... Hey, can you not do that? And all of a sudden, there's like a lot of anger directed at you by your, you know, kids. Not because like you saying like, "Hey, don't, uh, don't f- uh, be mean to the dog with your food" would be something that's a inexplicable. You're not yelling it. You're not doing anything besides just doing what you would normally do to like, mm-hmm. you know, corral a six and a two year old. <laughs> but all of a sudden, you're like a foreign invader in in the space. Yeah, they're right? they're all so part of like a dance number, and they've already been part of it. And then you're also coming into it and know it and are leading it. But midway, there's like, what the fuck is what is happening here? So I think, yeah. Now that we're saying that, I th- like this is coming off the dome. So I apologize that this is dumb, but like I think you can make the case that like. The reason that the mom in this movie gets uh, goes where she does first is that she's already an invader that's messing with everyone's reality by, like, being engaged in part of, like, I'm just going to go back to my job and being a mom and stuff like that. And, the, and she's even the in the attic. Is, I mean, like, she, her most of her yeah. character is in the attic, high up, away. And then she, yeah, she comes down and, like, literally messes with their reality in the same way that we've been saying – the color has yeah. in a way that like no one knows how to react to. No one knows if it's bad or good. People are just recognizing it's different. And reckless. I mean like where it's – she's making dinner. Yeah. That's normal. She cut her fingers off. That's not that's not normal. She's, she's going one step correct but in a different way and it's throwing things off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like it feels like the father has grown closer with the kids, despite having not necessarily the healthiest relationship with them. But like he's grown closer with the kids, while like the mother has sort of been off, off away, um, in in treatment, and like that's that's like a this sort of background tragedy that they only hint at with sort of subtle lines. The movie does a really good job of establishing the family dynamic pretty much as a whole without having a spoon feed too much like i mean obviously there's plenty where it's like he's probably smoking dope out the boat and you're like ooh, that guy smokes dope but but like even little things like you said where it's they they talk about the mom's cooking and the kids you know the kid the, while he's scooping out mystery meat he's like oh you know i miss mom's pancakes i remember that and i love nicholas cage's reaction he just goes okay and then sighs and then keeps scooping and then literally like the next line or two is like well, what is it oh it's it's duck and the little kid's like yeah i love ducks and clearly he's just talking about the animal and nicholas just goes everybody does and like but like that's it where it's like there's clearly it's like oh there's there's some bonding where the kid's just like oh fuck yeah i love ducks and he's like yeah i know right but while he's scooping his terrible duck meal like out he's like uh-huh mm-hmm, sure there you go <laughs> like it's bad but they definitely are bonding to a certain degree but then also later when the when uh, Jack is in shock. I laughed out loud at this line, but the mom says, you know, we should take him to a hospital. I do remember he's just like, no, it's an hour away. And I love, I love that line because it's not like, no, he'll be fine. It's, it's, it's like, it's like, no, that it's an hour away. He's probably just in shock. It's okay. And then, you know, the next 
two scenes later, whatever that does come into play. I like I like anything whenever it wraps around because he's like it's an hour away, and then she chops off her fingers, and then that's part of the plot. Like then it's an actual active element, not just like a throwaway um, line. Look, oh, yeah. I'm not trying to get into like everything symbolism or like can be pulled out into our current reality. Um, but there is something about like him saying, uh, no, it's an hour away or um, not reacting to like how like they bring the two that have been like merged together and, and <laughs> yeah. um, just throw them on the couch. And he, they're like trying to debate what to do. And it's like um, and when I think someone brings up like calling the police, she's like. He he doesn't say like no in that like they need medical attention or like what are they gonna do like the kids say that like what are they gonna do about this but he's like no we're gonna deal with it as a family yeah. and it's like these decisions aren't being made for health reasons they're being made for expediency and I can't help but like think of like well we should open the economy in schools because we need the economy in schools um, as opposed to like um, anything of like. Is that the healthy, safe? Yeah. Is that the best option for everyone? This isn't the correct um, answer overall. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's you're looking at like it would be annoying to have to leave in the middle of the night when you're about to finally have sex with your wife and have been drinking to drive to a hospital as opposed to like that's your reason for not taking yes, him to the hospital. One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. And and then and you know, parentheses, and he's probably fine. But like, really, it is. It's just like, ooh, that seems like uh, that wasn't the plan for tonight. You know, this uh, one thing we didn't get as much time to talk about, just because there is a lot to talk about in this movie. I was a little, you know, Peter, I probably shouldn't say this, but when you're like, I have so many notes, I don't know. I, there's so much I want to talk about. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty basic. Color, great, great special effects. Spooky uh, color. Great intensity. I, I think it's um, kind of a B movie too, right? Like it's, it's, but, it's, it's not like, it's not like a movie where you watch it and you're like, you're like, oh man, that one se- that one dramatic sequence is going to get you Oscars. <laughs> I think this might yeah, be the least I, amount of notes on any of the movie, like which is surprising to me. But but there but there is so much like as you start like peeling off oh, yeah. the meat off the duck. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, there's so there's so much. Everyone loves duck. <laughs> uh, there's so much to to talk about, and I like the one thing we didn't talk as much about as I want to. So I'll use it for my final thoughts. Is just like. You know, the one thing that, like, Lovecraft, if we're, if we're bringing this back to Lovecraft, is so good about is, like, this feeling of not – like, he's not a jump scare guy in his writing. Like, it, it is supposed to fill you with just the dread of something being wrong until the point that the dread becomes overwhelming. And, like, it morphs from dread into a feeling of terror, which I think is different than being scared, if that makes sense. And maybe I'm parsing words, but I'm going to keep going with it. Um, And this movie, I think, captures that better than any Lovecraftian adaptation, give or take Bloodborne, which we always hold up as, like, the perfect encapsulation of Lovecraft's work. And we talked about on the show, and I still think that's true. But, like, Lovecraft, the, the reason that, like, Bloodborne works so well is that you walk around this town that's just something's fucking wrong and you're killing monsters, very video gamey stuff. And then at some point, it's just as, like, overwhelming. And it's like, what is going on? And it, like, it starts to affect, like, even though theoretically you're getting better at the game, you're getting worse at dealing with each thing that shows up. And, um, 
for the, I think this movie better than any other Lovecraft adaptation or Lovecraft interpretation or anything else just captures like all of a sudden the dread has become terror and it's overwhelming. And that is just encapsulated at the end of this movie with just like an intensity level that is um, – that is earned like when when things start breaking down to the point that the film itself and the image itself is is breaking down into mush and the sound is just a high-pitched screech like it is overwhelming for the audience it is putting you in a situation like it it has slow burned you are the frog in the boiling water like you you recognize it's getting hotter and it's hotter and unlike the frog you get that maybe something is going a little bit wrong and pretty soon you're boiling and when it finally like sucks up into space and you see the last little narration you are almost gasping for breath and i even on the second watch i was like i was like yeah okay yep 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 i wasn't as like because I knew where it was going, I didn't expect myself to get as wrapped up in the intensity and the dread and the terror. And by the end of the movie, I was like, oh, God, all right. Ooh, like there's that that uh, white text on black on black screen for the credits felt like a relief again. And um, I imagine it'll be like that um, anytime I watch this because it's 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 a mood. It's not like an image. You're not necessarily waiting for like, and then this is going to be that, like even like the thing which we've talked about a lot is a really great point where like, there's that operating scene that's famously talked about. But like when you watch the thing over and over, you're kind of like, Oh my God, here's where it's going to fucking snap and smack you in the face. And this movie doesn't really ever smack you into the face until you're already like, just like, uncomfortably like okay ooh, this is getting this is this is going somewhere all right like i am i it, it catches you off guard and i think that is such a good like interpretation of what a reading a lovecraft story is because you're like the prose sucks the storytelling's not great the characters are wrote there's racism racism and all the other shit that you're like your brain is fending off and then all of a sudden at the end of the story you're like Oh, do I want to kind of turn a light on? I think so. Like, I'm not scared, but I don't feel like reality matches what I thought it did before I started reading this story. No, I, uh, I completely agree. It feels, if, if anything else, it feels more like, I mean, what I would assume, like, like, the effect is almost more like quicksand where you're not really realizing it. And then all of a sudden you're knee deep. And the only thing you can do is either sink or struggle and sink. And so you're just like, Oh, Okay, like you said, it's it's less scaring, more terror. Where you're kind of in it. There's nothing you can really do. There's no there's no force to fight against. There's no salvation. There's no any particular. I mean, for a movie that has a <clears throat> a mother that gets back fused with her son, <laughs> and then family carried to the couch, and then family carried to the attic, all while moaning and groaning and. <laughs> vampire allergic to light style screeching and whatever you're like we barely even touched on that at any point really uh, yeah. in this entire thing which yeah, is barely which did. is crazy because there's so much like you like you kind of said it's like I, I i didn't take that many notes and it's not because there's not so much going on there really is it's a lot of stuff where you barely start scratching and then there's just more and more to talk and discuss um my biggest thing with that, the creature overall was, I remember the first time I watched it, I thought they were going to, 
hold back. I didn't think that we were ever going to see. I, I thought that they were going to fuse together and then kind of die off. And I like I yeah. like that you get just a little creature type element just in that one scene. Really, you get some movement, you get all that stuff, but you get a full visual. And I did not expect that. Uh, yeah. Almost the opposite of like well, you mentioned. have to shoot both of them in the face because there's two. Oh, yeah. But like Jesus almost Christ. the opposite of what you mentioned with like the tree, the tree monster yeah. pulls up the sheriff. I think that that would have been better without seeing it. But if that's what it takes to even see the mother son monster in like full movement and stuff, uh, I mean, then I think it's a little bit worth it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Like, it's funny that we didn't talk about the gross uh, John Carpenter's The Thing style monsters, but like, and their painful mourn- moaning kind of uh, just sounds that make moaning. them sound like they want to die. Like, yeah, another intangible and another intangible thing, right? Like, yeah, they're they're still making vocal inflection. It just they don't say kill me, that, but they yeah. sure sound. Like, yeah, they sound yeah. like they're not having a yeah. good time. I feel like, yeah, like tree, on a decibel level, it's the same. Yeah. But I feel like the, the tree is the only stuff. thing. The tree and the actual force, like grabbing people, is the only thing that's like Legends of the Hidden outri- Temple outright aggressive. Because even even when the the, the the mother and son monster charges uh, Lavinia, um, it's charging her, but it's not like tearing her limb from her limb. Right? It's charging her because it's trying to like. It's either mad at her or it's trying to connect with her. It's not doing the thing thing. It has time to kill her. Yeah, it's, it's it never even takes a bite. No. It's just over. Yeah, her, which yeah. Who knows what that means. It just yeah. kind of, yeah, but like we we live with those cre- those creatures for a long time, right? Before the movie decides, Nicolas Cage decides that it's time for him to just like with him tossing the the tomatoes away. Like him going and deciding to kill the apacas is 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 really just him slaughtering his dream. Like, this was his dream is to have his family out here and to have this beautiful future with them. And he slaughter he has to slaughter it. Um, and same thing with, like, when he finally has to go upstairs and kill um, kill Teresa and Jack-Jack. Uh, which, by the way, Jack-Jack uh, is the, the the little boy on Haunting of Hill House. We, like, we just rewatched the first season. Like, uh, like finished it again yesterday or two days ago. And then I put on this movie. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> he's he's right kind of hurt. It kind of hurts because he's just this like painfully adorable little boy, and like he's got his Coke bottle glasses, so, and he's got his eyes uh, all big. He's so vulnerable, and you're just like, please don't hurt this boy. But it, it's it's you know it's part of the deal. Um, that kid is going to grow up uh, with a lot of interesting pictures of his childhood. Oh yeah. Um, but my point is this: that this movie actually does accomplish a few things that I think that no Lovecraftian adaptation has accomplished before. And that's why this is such a long episode is because there's a lot to dive into. One, uh, I think this is the first Lovecraftian movie to marry the psychedelic with Lovecraft in a way that is actually compelling. Uh, The Dean Stockwell Dunwich horror movie we'll probably never cover on the show because it's pretty bad. And it it basically just uses uh, a few kaleidoscopic sort of images (laughs) to get get to get you to that that kind of point. Right. Where it's like, all right, well, uh. Uh, this Dunwich horror cr- creature is uh, kind of just a horny 60s guy. So uh, there you go. <laughs> um, that The movie doesn't do that. The movie actually takes like psychedelia and, and turns uh, that psychedelic dream in, of the 60s into an acid nightmare, right? And um, it takes uh, Lovecraft and marries it with uh, protagonists that are genuinely sympathetic, which isn't always true. Um, Reanimator, um, those characters are not sympathetic. 
from beyond those characters are not really sympathetic like usually the characters end up fucking up in a way that makes you not sympathetic for them uh these are just this is just a goddamn family that was trying to survive right uh and then um marrying it with the occult is kind of interesting because it's basically richard stanley um, a believer in the occult admitting that uh up against for cosmic forces uh, the human mind and the human uh, capability, the human will, most importantly, like the thelemic practice uh, can only do so much. Um, your will uh, does not have uh, power in situations as as epic and cosmic as this. And the idea of him bringing in his sort of uh, belief system just to smash it on the ground uh, shows you how personal this is to him, right? Um, but the final thing that I want to talk about is the Colin Stetson score and how it blends into from diegetic to non-diegetic and the structure of the, the actual songs uh, is, is extremely, co- extremely cosmic horror. The fact that like Nathan can smell certain things that they can't smell kind of ties into the fact that like Lavinia can hear certain things in the soundtrack or the score that no one else can. Like there's moments where the score interrupts the movie because the score becomes part of the the actual sound design of the film. And Colin Stetson, who also did the score for um, uh, Hereditary, uh, is is a, is a masterful, masterful sort of uh, avant garde sort of experimental composer. And um, his work in the movie is. It very much gets you into a sort of psychedelic, almost meditative state, but at the same time, like slowly unnerves you and gets you kind of anxious because he's sort of taking musical forms that you're familiar with, like consciously and then subconsciously subverting them. And I love the idea because usually like Lovecraft scores are very much um, classical. They're very like like the From Beyond score is is pretty much just like a. Like a, a adventure kind of uh, fun, zippy kind of score. It's it, it's very much like the Reanimator score. It's it's pulling off of uh, Bernard Har- Bernard Herman, um, classic sort of composers. This is experimental, out there music to capture something that is, is sort of ephemeral. It's sort of odd. Like there's almost no melody to the Colin Stetson score, um, but like you're trying to grasp it. And that is reason number 9,000 why this episode is so long is because uh, I, I, I think that the score is the true, like, secret shadow uh, Nyarlathotep uh, MVP of the movie um, because uh, that score is sort of acting under all those scenes and making you unconsciously sort of uh, more anxious than you would be and make sure that even, you know, strange line readings like Nicolas Cage, like even if they make you giggle a little bit, the movie grips you the second after you stop sort of getting your little, your little like ironic giggles out, right? right? Like, the, like the movie gets... <laughs> the movie gets gets its claws back into you immediately, uh, and it influences the actual events of the movie. The, the score is is interdimensional, and that's why I fucking love this movie. Yeah, good movie. Good movie. Uh, three stars. <laughs> yeah, good movie. Yeah. yeah. C minus. Why don't you just sum it all up, Peter, with, yeah, good movie. Fuck. <laughs> um, it is, it is something time. where, like, I, I've seen this a lot, like, because of the neon and how how everything you said about the score applies to Mandy as well. Um, 
I, uh, well, besides the fact that, like, it becomes a, I guess, a part of the, like, becomes, like, diegetic, but, um. My second or third note I, overall literally is just look up the score. It was like, all right, there you go. Like, clearly. Yeah. So, uh, but I, but I think, but I think, like, yeah. that's not this. Like, I think, I think it was weirdly criticized for being Mandy-esque in that way when it's like, yeah, you're right. It's Dars Nicholas Cage. It's produced by the same production company. It has a, a score that feels like it fits the picture and it stars Nicholas Cage. But like, it's not aping Mandy. It's just doing it's, it's doing a similar thing well. Like, the score for Mandy rules, the score for this rules in the way that it like very separate i think elevates the material yeah but like i don't know it's kind of like saying like well you know back to the future was an entertaining movie raiders of the lost ark was an entertaining movie yeah like like i get there's there's some similarities but anyway uh but we have three more of these to do Tonight? uh pete yep we're never going to stop, Ryan. All right. Ryan won't be on any of those. Ryan will be on next month for something that we're not going to talk about right Woo. now. Ryan, uh, next week we're doing Underwater, uh, which is a movie that is easily forgotten. It was released in January after getting delayed for a couple years. It was just, uh, I think, kind of marketed as like, what if pitch black, but in water. Um, but it's got some other stuff going on. Um, TJ Miller. Again, not a good movie. But it's definitely doing something. Uh, but definitely a movie. Um, that well, I, I'm I'm being like especially cold. I know Peter hasn't seen it. Underwater was a movie that, like I said, I walked out of the theater. I'm like, holy shit! I need Peter to see this. <laughs> it with him, even though not like Color Out of Space. Like I want us to sh- to bask in the glory. But like I still think about Underwater. I almost rented it for some reason because like I want to watch all the ways it could have been a better movie. And then it does something at the end that's like, oh, well, that is interesting uh, in a way that that has caused it to be included in a Lovecraft themed month. So, um like I said, it's really no. Like, I, I, I can appreciate the vagueness. And also, you got to deal with T.J. Like, Miller. Like, do you want to see T.J. Miller? I mean, Kristen, it's a tough call. T.J. Yeah. Miller. But yeah. um, I am excited. I am. Yeah. <laughs> My wife, Boris. I am very excited. There's a bomb on this train. Um, <laughs> I am very excited to talk about it. I think this will be our first episode. I'm just going to call it now, Peter. I not the normal podcast that we do. That we we talk more about the movie it sh- could and should have been, as opposed to the movie that it is. The possibilities that of it. that doesn't surprise me just it's, based off the trailer and what I've seen. It's like the yeah, what it could have been versus what it actually is. Because it is all there. Like they have all these things that allude to a different, better movie that are like very explicit. That they never comment on or delve deep in. It feels like there is a five out of five movie sitting somewhere, or at least of like a better movie sitting somewhere. Yeah. And it's like they cut all that shit out and then they left the finale that no longer connects to the rest of the movie, but seems like all these little weird, like, oh, they're gonna pay that off later. And then they don't. But then the finale indicates they, they thought were they were going. Possibly gonna tie all that together. Yeah. Like, yeah, like you needed like lines of dialogue to make it better. Like, that's all you need. It's it's weird. I'm curious now. 
I'll know. probably check it out that, on my that own just to be like, I get most it. things that I've ever said. Like, <laughs> but I am, I, as you can tell, I am very excited to talk yeah. about it. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, Absolutely. Anyway, uh, we'll talk more about it next week. Uh, good night. Good night. Good night. The podcast it burns. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches. Peter and Aaron. <laughs>